This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you hit that subscribe button and I hope you're digging what we're doing here. Lord knows I've been digging what I've been doing lately, including getting all these new five-star reviews for helping people do what I love the most. No, not talking about old wrestling, but that's second talking about helping families just like yours save tens of thousands of dollars at savewithconrad.com is what we're talking about we would love to help you save some cash right now if you're in a 30-year loan if you've got a second mortgage if you've got credit card debt there's never been a better time to save money than right now just passed my 19 year anniversary in the mortgage business and i've never been able to offer rates as low as i can right now i've also never been licensed in as many states If you can hear my voice, there's a good chance I'm licensed in your state. And it's free to find out how much money you can save right now at SaveWithConrad.com. And how's this for starters? No house payments for two months. But don't take my word for it. Just ask Joseph in Alexandria, Virginia. He gave us a five-star review and said, Fantastic service, great attention to detail, simple and easy process. How about over in Perryton, Texas? Jarrell says, Conrad, David, and Jennifer were complete professionals. And I had recommended them already to a couple. I couldn't put them over more if I tried. Thank you again for helping us out in a major way. I won't forget it. What about up in Gallatin, Texas? William gave us a five star and he says, Jimmy did a fine job keeping me informed, working through a couple of unique things involving our original loan. Would be sure to recommend this fine team to anyone. How about Christina moving down from New York City? Yep, she wrote. As first time home buyers coming from out of state, naturally, this is a very stressful process, but save with Conrad was a blessing. The entire team is helpful, courteous, and just made the entire experience so much easier and more pleasant than it could have been. I can't thank save with Conrad enough. Thank you for everything you've done for my family. The reviews keep on coming guys. Five star reviews one after another. You're going to save a boatload of cash. If you're in a 30 year loan, we're going to show you how to pay your house off faster and with cheaper monthly payments. Maybe you've been throwing your money away on rent. You don't need a huge down payment or perfect credit to buy a house. We can help you make it happen right now. And maybe best of all, if you've got credit card debt, I can save you five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention interest rates in the twos? Can't believe that's real, but just last week we locked a bunch of new loans with interest rates in the twos. My only advice to you is hurry. Barry Habib is the foremost expert on interest rates. You've probably seen him on every cable news service. Just last week, he advised that we're on borrowed time with these rates. The time to act is now. Get ahead of this. You're going to be kicking yourself. You missed this once in a lifetime opportunity. Keep more of your own money. Go to savewithconrad.com right now before it's too late. There's no better time to say I love you. And the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. Now, you've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com, and you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? 
Stephen has a ready-for-love engagement ring collection that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. And don't worry, Stephen won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently... He's kind of kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and his guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too. And that's just the beginning. Gifts that say, I love you every single day. Backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com for fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey everybody, Eric Bischoff here, coming to you from the newly remodeled studios that I'm dubbing the Doghouse. That's right, I am uh, converting what was originally a pretty fancy doghouse 22 years ago, then converted it to a bunkhouse, and now it's being converted to the broadcast home of 83 weeks and all of the great content that we do each and every week. On adfreeshows.com. Now, hey, speaking of adfreeshows.com, in today's episode, we had a little bit of a technical glitch at the Conradison. Just as Conrad and I were getting ready to, uh, to to record this morning's show, there was a power surge. Last I heard, a modem got fried, and it's going to be Wednesday before Conrad is back up and running. So we thought we'd do something a little bit different this week. Kind of a bonus, if you will, making chicken salad out of chicken shit, as they say. And today you're going to get a best of 83 weeks. But wait, there's more. And if you listen today, you're also going to get just a taste, just a sample, a tease, if you will, of some of the ridiculous nonsense that happens over at adfreeshows.com. It is a blast. You know, we we talk a lot about being a family over at adfreeshows.com, and I can tell you from personal experience, we're really making friends with a lot of our family that joins over at adfreeshows.com. We get together on Zoom a couple times a week. There's all kinds of great content, and we just have a blast. So if you haven't checked out adfreeshows.com, please please give it a shot. There's some amazing content there, just hundreds if not thousands of hours of, of unique content from myself, Tony, Arn, JR, Bruce. It's, it's just so much fun. You, you really want to check it out. But today... Like I said, you're going to get a special um, best of 83 weeks along with a little taste from adfreeshows.com. So kick back, enjoy, and we'll be back at you next week with a brand new fresh episode here on 83 Weeks. The fall, it's finally here. 
my favorite time of year. And this fall, as you get back into the swing of things, Bespoke Post has brand new seasonal box of awesome collections for you guys. Guaranteed to upgrade your life. Now, my favorite so far has been the one liter wooden whiskey cask. It goes up on my, my back bar of my home. Many of you who follow me on social media know I've got a 120 year old cherry wood antique back bar. I absolutely love it. And this one liter wooden whiskey cask looks absolutely spectacular on there. And I can take an average bottle of whiskey, pour it in the in the cask, let it sit for three or four weeks, out comes liquid gold. So whether it's gear to upgrade your autumn beers, cozy threads for when the temperature drops, Bespoke Post only sends guys the best stuff every month, no matter what you're into. Box of Awesome has you covered. From style to grooming goods, barware, cooking tools, outdoor gear, you name it, Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. Just happen to notice a bad-looking Damascus folding knife comes with a leather carrying case, a sharpening tool, and if you've never seen a high-quality Damascus folding knife up close, you got to take a look. To get started, Take the quiz at boxofawesome.com. Your answers will help them pick the right box of awesome for you, and you get a surprise every time it shows up at your door. They release new boxes every month across a ton of categories. It's free to sign up. What are you waiting for, man? And you can skip a month or cancel anytime you want. Each box, they only cost 45 bucks, and they have over $70 worth of gear in it, so it is a great value. Get 20% off. Your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code 83 weeks at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code 83 weeks for a 20% discount off your first box. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff on Patreon. Of course, we're talking about a bonus piece here on adfreeshows.com that I'm calling Eric fires back. And we hope this is volume one, uh, Eric, it's probably no surprise to you that, uh, quite a few former WCW performers have taken the payday to sit in front of a camera and shit on you. And well, we call it a shoot interview and you've even done some shoot interviews back when you were knee deep in WCW and you heard about the rise of this concept of guys just shitting on each other on a video cassette through RF video, and it was being framed as a shoot interview. What did you think of them then? And has your opinion of a shoot interview changed over the years? What did I think of them then? Um, you know, I think disappointed, I think is probably the first thing that comes to my mind. I, I think most of the shoot interviews that I saw early on were a joke. They were really just a platform for talent that wasn't associated with a wrestling company that really didn't have any relevance in the industry anymore um, to get out and rewrite their own personal history or vent their personal issues. And most of them were, they were like really bad wrestling promos. For, for the most part, so many of them that I saw early on were talents. And this is still true today. And it, 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 it exists on a lot of different levels, even now. So many uh, of the interviews that I saw from people and heard from people about what was going on in WCW or from a business perspective, you know, 
talking about things that they had no idea what they were talking about. Let, let, again, let's put this in context. 99.9% of the talent, I would say probably 100%, but I'm going to leave a margin for, for error there, of the talent in WCW had no idea how WCW operated from a corporate point of view. They had no idea where the opportunities were, where the problems were. They had no idea who people like Vicki Miller were or Terry McGurk was or Scott Sasso was. They possibly knew the names, particularly of someone like Scott Sasso because he was corporately pretty high profile internally. But so many of the people that were instrumental in actually pulling the strings for WCW uh, or, or, or trying to undermine WCW from a corporate point of view. You know, Harry Anderson is another name that comes to mind. These were all people that I don't care if you're Chris Jericho or, or who you are. You know, I, I don't mean to single out Chris by any stretch, but an example of talking about, you know, some of the dysfunction from an internal point of view of WCW, but yet they had no idea who, how, or why those conditions existed, but they spoke as if they did. They like to present the the appearance of these shoot interviews that they had, you know, really strong insight as to how WCW was working. And I think Chris Jericho comes to mind simply because of, and, and, and it's a, you know, he was absolutely correct and he, he was telling the truth, but there was an incident where he got a merchandise check that was like completely off the wall and nobody had any answers for him. And, and I understand from a talent's point of view, how frustrating that would be and how, you would almost find humor in it if it wasn't so, if, if it didn't affect your money. But, you know, understanding or, or, or experiencing the problems that existed internally in WCW is a far different conversation than a discussion as to how or why or who was responsible for some of those things. So I think in all of the conversations that I've heard, not all of them, but most of the shoot interviews that I heard, I heard so many people talking about the business side of WCW that had no fucking clue. 80 mm. or 90% of the talent never interfaced with anybody in WCW unless they were at a television taping or at a house show taping. It wasn't like, you know, talent worked inside of the office. So that their opinions and their perceptions of what was going right and what was going wrong and who is responsible for what and how decisions made were completely unfounded. So just at, at, at its core, most of the conversations at their core, most of the conversations that I heard were people talking about things that they knew nothing about and then weaving their own personal opinions and venting and trying to keep themselves relevant by doing a good wrestling promo. And, and that's what most of those shoot interviews to me have, have, no, I haven't sat down and watched all of them clearly. And I, I've only sampled a few of them. And usually I can only get through, <laughs> you know, four or five minutes before my head starts to explode, which, you know, doesn't forecast well for what this show is going to end up being like, but I'm, I'm going to do my best not to let my head explode, not to overreact, not to go off on rants, not to get pissed off. I really, I, I, I've literally, I've been sitting for an hour as I'm sucking down caffeine, preparing myself mentally for this show, much like I would preparing myself to go in for an IRS audit. 
<laughs> so I'm, I just have to be in the right frame of mind, and hopefully that I am. And um, hopefully we'll be able to do more of these, and it won't require therapy or excessive amounts of Jameson or, you know, hit off the vape pen to get over all of this. I don't know, but we're going to give it a try. Well, listen, I'm excited that we're taking a stab at this. Uh, you and I were joking off air that, uh, as controversial of a figure as you were once upon a time, we could probably do one of these every month until we stop the podcast, which we uh-huh. hope is never, but no, uh, no, no, we're never going to stop the podcast. Here's what I figured out. Conrad, not to cut you off, which I always do. And I apologize in advance for doing it throughout the show probably, but when we're all done, when, when we've covered everything there is to cover version 2.0 is going to be hypothetically 83 weeks where we can go back and literally rebook kind of fantasy booking based on what we know now and all of the things that I would have loved to change if I would have been in that frame of mind, if I lived in that frame of mind, but we'll, we'll actually sit down and go over these shows and you can, you can tell me how you would book, for example, star K 98. And I'll tell you how I would rebook it with 2020 hindsight. I think that would be fun. That's a great idea. And I don't think we're done by any stretch of the imagination. Oh but, no, uh, no, no. I'm no, but you know, but like well, on my 75th birthday, for example, <laughs> 10 years, 10 years from now, when, when we're sitting around, we go, okay, we got to do a show. What should we talk about? Oh, we talked about that. Oh, we already covered that. Oh, we already covered that. I figured we've got a good eight or 10 years before we hit that point, but I'm ready. I'm already, th- I'm already going back to like 1994 and, and starting to rethink, you know, if I would have known then what I know now, how would I book this show mm. or how would I have asked other people <laughs> to book this show? And I think, actually, I think that would be fun. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. And, uh, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am today. I, I don't think this is going to be as fun for you. I've selected a few different takes. We're going to try to hit a little bit of everybody as much as we can today. So first up, Eric, we're going to uh, go to the guy who, uh, probably had the most legendary shoot interviews of all time and not much has changed. Mr. Jim Cornette. Uh, now this sample is going to be, uh, from an offering from our friends at kfabecommentaries.com. I know you've done some work with Sean Oliver before, uh, of everyone that does these shoot interviews. I think Sean does them best. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I would, you know, he, Sean doesn't really have an agenda and he, he comes at the process from a pretty balanced perspective, but Sean is a businessman and mm-hmm. he was doing these interviews to, to make money. And clearly the more controversial, bombastic, um, and ridiculous these interviews were the better for, for Sean, the more money he made, the more popular they became. I, I think, you know, the wrestling audience, I think loves hearing these kind of interviews and the idea, I think of a shoot interview, uh, it just, the term kind of pisses me off because you're kind of, you're, you're embracing kind of the inner work. You're, you're, you're embracing part of the language of the inner circle of wrestling. And by calling something a shoot interview, you're characterizing it as real and honest and out of character. And in the case of Jim Cornette, it's not out of character. Jim is Jim 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
So there was no unique perspective. It's not like we were only used to hearing Jim in a character that is 180 degrees from the real life or shoot, God, I hate using that term, interview um, format. You know, Jim is Jim. He's he, he's he doesn't change, you know, whether he's on in front of a camera or whether he's, you know, uh, spouting something off online or in social media. But, um, yeah, I, I could see why Jim would be a great candidate for for Sean, because he's probably in, in this format, probably one of the more articulate and entertaining people out there. I, I often get a kick out of listening to some of Jim's rants, not that I agree with any of it, just because sometimes they're so absurd, but they flow so well. Yeah. <laughs> they're entertaining. They do. Well, listen, up first is uh, him describing the first time he met you, or at least had a conversation with you. And, uh, it wasn't exactly, uh, pleasant, at least from his side of things. He, uh, had agreed to come in and do some things with Bill Watts and sort of do like a little, um, invasion angle, if you will, of smoky mountain wrestlers. And they were going to crap on and talk disparagingly about WCW on WCW programming to build some heat for the angle. And then when Bill's out and you're in. Some of that stuff disappears and Cornet takes great issue with it. So here we go. When it aired on TV, it was edited. That was actually the, the one thing that led to Watts calling me and say, I'm going home because he was supposed to have full control. It was edited. They, they bleeped the audio of me talking about how bad I hated Herd and the company and what the, how they'd screwed us around and everything and neutered the angle. And some little, they told Watts, they lied to him. They said, oh, it was a directional microphone. It didn't pick it up. No, they had gone in and post and taken the audio out. And I told him that. And that's what he was investigating. And that's when this other blew up and he was about to go home. So my little birds told me, well, Eric Bischoff is down in TV production. He's the one who made that call. (coughs) So Eric Bischoff is walking by me in the locker room. I said, Eric, we never met. Yes, because he'd walked by me a couple times. I said, uh, somebody buried you to me. Would you like a rebuttal? He said, what do you mean? I said, somebody told me you were responsible for editing the, the angle we did on TV. Well, uh, you know, we, we took something. We thought that it was uh, kind of uh, downplaying or down knocking the company, and it was kind of strong, and it was this and that. I said, that's what it was supposed to be, Nimrod, because we were trying to make it a shoot. We were trying to make people believe that we were really mad because that's the kind of thing that sells tickets. I said, since I already cleared everything I was going to say with Bill Watts, the horse's head, I didn't know that I needed to clear things with the horse's ass. But you don't need to worry about that because now that Bill's gone, we're out of here too because I don't trust any of you motherfuckers. And I didn't want to come back here except for him anyway, so this is the last time you're going to see us, so good day to you, sir. And I walked off and left the fucking prick. Hi, Eric. Fuck you. You fucking bitch. You little whiny little bitch. Hashtag whiny little bitch. (laughs) i'm so glad you picked this one first this is so much fun did you see the table for three conrad that i did with michael hayes and jim Cornette a couple years ago i did it was glorious now you know jim said a lot there so i i i I hate to use the term unpacking things because it's overused but let's take that let's break it down kind of one comment at a time if we can Uh number one he suggested 
that Bill Watts left on his own volition because he didn't have as much control as Bill Watts wanted to have. We know that's not true. Okay. Well, we're starting out. The very opening statement is complete fabricated nonsense. It's bullshit. So when, when you start an interview out, any kind of interview, and unless you're a heel and you're intentionally lying in your interview to get heat as a part of a storyline, you know, that is probably an exception. But in this case, this is supposed to be a shoot interview, which is the truth or the inside, the unvarnished, unfiltered facts and truth about a situation. And in this case, Jim Cornette, who is, I, I think he has a lot more in common with Vince Russo than he cares to believe. In, in terms of believing his own bullshit, is telling you a story that is fundamentally provable and and and, and well documented as a lie. The very premise of his opening statement is a complete fucking lie. That's number one. Look, we're having a blast on the show, but let's get serious for just a second. Distracted driving is a serious problem on our roadways, leading to the deaths of thousands of people and injuries in the hundreds of thousands each year. When you take your eyes and your focus off the road, even for a second, it can be deadly, not just for you, but for other drivers, pedestrians, and bicyclists. Sadly, many Americans use their cell phones while driving, whether it's texting, checking emails, scrolling media feeds, or any other form of distraction. Drivers are putting themselves and the others around them at great risk. It's important to know 48 states ban texting and driving. 21 states prohibit all drivers from using cell phones while driving. Distracted drivers are not only putting people at risk, they're also breaking the law. Look, it's dangerous to use your cell phone behind the wheel. That's why law enforcement officers write tickets and enforce hands-free and anti-texting and driving laws. So when you're driving, man, put down the phone, keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road, and your mind at the task of driving. Remember, you drive, you text, you pay. Brought to you by NHTSA. Number two. The incident that he described in such detail about first meeting me in a locker room never happened. Had, had Jim Cornette said something like that to me, my response would have been legendary. Not saying I would have gotten physical, but I would have pushed it verbally to the point where I would be hoping that he would throw a punch or do something physical, would have, which would have given me the ability to at least argue that I was defending myself. I would have enjoyed every moment of that. And this isn't Eric thinks he's a tough guy shit, right? That stuff, I've said this before, that's so far in my rearview mirror, I can't even see it anymore. However, <laughs> in that moment, at that time, in the early 90s, Dealing with a guy like Jim Cornette would not have been anything more than recreational for me at that point. It never happened. It never freaking happened. And what I like about this comment from Jim, especially starting off 
this show. And the reason I ask you if you saw the table for three, because Jim, you know, reached into his bag of tricks, you know, stories that he's told that he feels, you know, get a response and put himself over or whatever his agenda is. And I didn't, I was sitting at the table and I'm listening to Jim. Now in this shoot interview, and I really, or shoot interview, table for three interview, I really encourage people to go back to the WWE Network and watch it for themselves and look at the look on Jim's face. When Michael Hayes says, but wait a minute, Jim, all these things you're, you're, you're describing, you're saying about Eric editing out something that you and Bill Watts agreed to, Eric wasn't in charge then. Eric didn't have the ability to change a television show then, which was actually very true and 100% accurate. If it is, and I'm not even sure if a decision was ever made, by the way. I, you know, this big OVW invasion, whatever the, whatever he, whatever Jim has created in his own mind. I'm not saying it's all, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying none of it is true. There may have been a discussion. There may have been an attempt between Bill and Jim. I don't know. I wasn't, you know, I, I was so far outside of the, the booking decisions and the creative decisions and any decisions that were being made in WCW, what Bill Watts was in charge, that, that it could have very well, they could have had a conversation and there could have been an attempt. But my point is, my ability to walk into an edit bay and say, mm, I don't think we want to do that was so far outside of my scope of responsibilities. It's fucking laughable. And I think exposes Jim for what a, uh, what a carny fraud he really is. And he is, he is a carnival fucking fraud. And this is a perfect example of it. Now, in the part that I really enjoyed, and by the way, I'm going to go back for the table of three. So as we're sitting there and I'm listening and, you know, Jim and I shook hands before the table of three and, you know, we had agreed we're going to do this. And, you know, I was looking forward to it because I really hadn't had any interactions with Jim face to face. The truth of the story is the only time that I was in physical proximity to Jim Cornette, while he was associated in any way with WCW, was very early on. I don't recall the event, uh, the, the pay-per-view. I think it might have been in Chattanooga shortly after I got there. And Jim was a part of that, and he was sitting in a chair as I was walking by, and I think we both nodded at each other, and that was it. That was the only time I was in any physical presence at all of Jim Cornette. And so, so his description of the conversation and the shit that he said to me is just him blowing himself, which I'm not going to comment on that right now, but maybe we'll get into that before this is over. It, it's just such in the context of it being a shoot interview is so much horseshit. It's, it's not, it doesn't anger me. It makes me laugh. And I only hope that people go back, like I say, watch the table for three when, when, when Michael Hayes says, but wait a minute, wait a minute, my, Jim, Eric wasn't even in charge then. And you could see there's not a lot of color in Jim's face. I, I, he, I think he's, you know, I don't think he sees a lot of sunlight, but you could see whatever color was left in his face just drained out of him. And he looked like he, he didn't know what to say. If you can imagine that, Jim Cornette not knowing what to say. And the other part of this that I really like is when he, and I busted his balls on this a couple of times afterwards, his little birds, his little stooges. Well, first of all, who do you think they were? Just commenting on recent events. But 
and I've said this before, Conrad, I know you're sick of hearing it because I'm sick of hearing myself say it. But when you rely on little birds, as Jim liked to call them, or stooges, as I refer to them, you're getting information that your little birds, whatever their motivations, <laughs> and your stooges, likewise, are tell- they're, they're telling you things they think you want to hear. So they can get a little closer to you. So they remain in your your proximity and 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 maintain you know kind of a relationship with you for whatever reason. It's just bullshit. I had zero influence over what went on creatively in television after Bill Watts left. I didn't even get the job as executive producer to quite a while after Jim or after Bill Watts left. And in my scope of responsibilities. I, as an executive producer, I could decide where we were going to shoot a show. I could decide how to tweak the format of a show, meaning the structure of it, not the content of it, the structure of it, how we open the show, how we close the show, if we're going to use bumpers, if we're not going to use bumpers, new graphics, not new graphics, that type of thing. The, the, the technical aspects of television, I, was, I had complete control over. The content of the show. What went in it, whether it was wrestling matches or you know, I had no ability to hire and fire talent. I had no influence on that. Nobody even asked my opinion about those things. Nobody asked my opinion about creative. That's, that wasn't my role, especially when I first started. Now, that changed over time. Certainly, it changed a lot towards the end of 93 and 94, obviously afterwards. But at the times, the specific time frame that – that Jim, the fantasy that Jim Cornette lives within during that period of time, I had absolutely no control. And when Michael Hayes pointed it out, it just took the air out of Cornette. He just turned into it. He was like a puppy that pissed on the carpet and knew he was going to get whacked alongside of the head with a rolled up newspaper. He really is. He really is a weak minded individual. And you can always tell with a guy, you know, when guys talk about, and you know this, you know, you and I had an incident about a year and a half ago where I said something about Jim living off his mommy and daddy's money because he doesn't really make any on his own. And he took huge offense to that. He was going to beat my ass with a baseball bat. And I, when you called me and told me, that, I said, what was it, Conrad? Maybe you can remember. It was like he was going to give me two choices. Either call him and apologize or meet me with a baseball bat. And I had a, I hung up and I said, okay, i got to think about that one because one sounds fun and one just makes it go away. <laughs> and I, I thought, God, I, one of these days somebody's going to call that punk-ass little bitch out and just beat his ass because he's Jim Cornette. Is, he's, a, he's a gutless little punk that tries to intimidate and bully people. And I'm sure, Conrad, you know people like this. Anytime when someone's first immediate go-to is, yeah, I'm going to grab a baseball bat, take your kneecaps out. Okay, well, what you really are is a gutless little punk that tries to intimidate people so you don't really have to confront anything. And it probably works with the little birds that Jim and his wife like to hang out with in the hot tub. That's I'm sure those you know those people love to feed Jim information to kind of stay in the universe and the the Jim Cornette cocoon. But it was such absolute horseshit and and provably fiction, provable fiction that it, it it's more funny than anything. Oh man. I don't know if I regret this yet, but let's keep going. Uh, <laughs> Come on, let's stir it up. Let's well, let's have some fun. 
the hell was that? Did you hear that? That's your moose asking for Manscaped. <laughs> Do you have a moose near the caboose that needs to be tamed? I'm talking hairy, big, and need some support? Well, thankfully, our sponsor today, Manscaped, has got you covered to keep the hair looking nice and trimmed and feeling fully supported. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And let me tell you, long before Manscaped came into my life, yours truly, getting ready for a date, on, a night on the town with Mrs. B. I'm in the shower. I'm in a hurry, as I always am. I got everything under control. I grab my disposable razor. I'm trimming up nice and neat, or trying to, until all of a sudden, ah, I look. This romantic evening's going down the drain. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, this could be a permanent injury. But no, I lived. And thank God, I lived long enough to see the Manscaped engineering team. They perfected the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created, the Lawnmower 3.0. Now, the premium Lawnmower 3.0, it's waterproof, it includes an LED light, and it's made with advanced skin safe technology, which reduces nicks and cuts on your delicates. Now, you get this trimmer inside the Perfect Package 3.0, which also includes the Manscaped Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver. It's a ball toning spray, and both are super practical, and they smell great too, which we all know can come in handy, depending on, you know, but you know. Plus, for a limited time, when you order the Perfect Package Kit, you get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag and the Manscaped Anti-Chafing Boxer Briefs. Now, the Manscaped anti-chafing cooling boxer briefs might just be one of my favorite parts of the collection. The Manscaped boxer briefs have optimal temperature control with their crop cooling technology while keeping your pride and joy fully supported. The waistband is also super elastic to reduce chafing and rubbing. Plus, when your girl sees this logo, she knows she's got a real Manscaped man. I can speed things along, if you know what I mean. Pair these boxer briefs with their pH-balancing liquid products like the Crop Preserver, and you are ready for anything. You need to try this out for yourself. Get 20% off free shipping by visiting manscaped.com forward slash 83 weeks. This code is auto-applied. Your balls will thank you. Again, 20% off free shipping when visiting manscaped.com forward slash 83 weeks the code is auto applied that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscaped forward slash 83 weeks from the moose to the caboose always use the right tool for the job next up the best there is the best there was the best there ever will be bret hart says eric bischoff killed wrestling let's take a listen they were so bad they'd kill any hope in anybody they destroy anybody wow i don't have a good thing to say about eric bischoff or anything he ever did that guy was talk about the midas touch he was the opposite <laughs> he could kill your career he was too stupid to know what a career was or that that actual passion yeah like a, if you have passion <laughs> for your matches and you have a a genius for 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 wrestling talent didn't mean anything to eric bischoff he, he was the worst loser 
maggot that ever got into wrestling. He was just the worst. I have nothing. He's a nice enough guy, but he was, <laughs> he was just the worst. He was, I feel so bad because I went to WCW really wanting to make a difference. And I think if you look at WCW and all the names that they had and all the wrestlers and all the other things, they had everything. All they needed was somebody that knew what to do. Like uh, someone with half a yeah, brain. And I would think that after what happened to you, you would want to go to WCW and shove it up Vince's ass, right? Right. That would you be know, the plan, and then they, you're not, you I've can't. I've seen Eric Bischoff. I've, I've heard his quote, which is probably why I get pretty hostile about Eric Bischoff, about Bret Hart came here. He was like a broken toy, or he didn't, That's what he didn't said. have the same fire. Like I could strangle him when I hear him say that, because it's like, that is so not true. I was like on fire, wanting to, I wanted to take the world on. I wanted to take that whole company. I wanted to kick Vince right in the teeth and give him like the best matches. I'll Booker T, give me Benoit, give me Sting, give me Hogan, give me all these guys. We can, and we'll turn this thing, let's get this thing really rocking here. Mm -hmm. And he was such an idiot. I mean, I have, I would say all that right to him if he was sitting there. That you, I believe you. You are an idiot and you cost everybody. Like, look at wrestling today, it's a monopoly. Yeah. So the wrestlers themselves have no leverage. Of any kind. They can't, it's like, oh, if you don't pay me, I'm going to go to WCW like the old days. That kept every, that was so much better for the wrestlers because then we have a bargaining table. But uh, today, no. And that's all Eric Bischoff's fault. He killed the wrestling business. Wow. He was the worst. That's Bret Hart talking to great friend of the show, Sam Roberts. He has a tremendous wrestling podcast. I highly recommend. Check it out. Not Sam is what you need to throw in your search engine to get more great interviews from Sam. Now that we've told everybody where they can hear Sam, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about Brett, knowing that I think a couple of years ago over in the UK, you guys sort of kissed and made up and then we hear something like this still floating around. That's got to sting a little bit. It really doesn't. It doesn't. And I think anybody that's a, now listen, if you're a hardcore Brett Hart fan, you're going to believe every word you're going to agree with his point of view you're, you're, I mean, if, if you're that much of a Bret Hart fan, you're probably not going to think or listen objectively to those comments. And that's okay. It's just, that's life, right? Um, it doesn't make me mad at all um, because I think anybody that is honest with themselves and objective, which is hard to do in wrestling because it's, it's it, it, by design, it's, it's, it's a, it's a divisive kind of form of entertainment. Um, and people thrive on that divisiveness, which is why things like shoot interviews, you know, have a niche in, in the marketplace. But if you've listened to Bret Hart's interviews over the years, Bret always has to have someone to hate. He has to have someone to blame. He has to have someone, whether it's me, whether it's Hulk Hogan, whether it's Bill Goldberg, whether it's Vince McMahon, whether it's Shawn Michaels, it does. whether it's Ric Flair, he had the same issues with Ric Flair, whether it's Mick Foley, it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, who is his, you know, heat du jour? Who does he have heat with today? You know, what's on the menu today that, that Bret Hart can go out and, 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 have these kind of interviews that makes himself feel above it all. And it's everybody else's responsibility. Everything is everybody else's fault. Nothing that, that went wrong in Bret Hart's career, including in WWF has anything to do with him. 
It was all Vince McMahon. It's all Shawn Michaels. It's all Hulk Hogan. It's all this guy. It's all that guy. He's always blaming somebody else. And that's just a, a big hole in the soul of Bret Hart that he's trying to fill with hate and, and blame. And, and it, 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 may, it doesn't make me angry. It doesn't make me mad. It makes me sad for Bret because I can't imagine walking around with all of that contempt and anger and resentment in, in my mind. And it, 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 I just wouldn't, I couldn't imagine carrying that around. It, it must be very dark most of the time to be Bret Hart. It must be a cloudy day in his universe almost every day if you're walking around with that. And it's, it, you know, he does, again, here's Bret Hart, a guy who had absolutely zero knowledge of how WCW was structured, of how it operated, of what the, the business challenges were. Zero. The guy would show up looking like he slept in a gutter for three days, like he'd been on a bender, not suggested he was, because Brett wasn't a drinker that I was ever aware of, but he'd just, he'd show up, he, he looked like a wet afghan that had been sleeping outside in a, in a gutter somewhere. He'd show up and he'd mope around, and this is in the beginning. He didn't come in there full of fire. He didn't come in there and said, hey, give me this guy, give me that guy. No, I, I do believe that when Brett first made the move, first made that decision to come to WCW, I believe him when he says, you know, he, he, what he's really saying is he wanted revenge. He, he wanted to teach Vince McMahon a lesson, which in and of itself is kind of like the, the wrong way to go about things. But I understand it. I understand it. But shortly thereafter, I mean, he was he, it was like the walking dead whenever you would see Brett. He was expressionless. He didn't engage. He didn't insert himself. And, you know, one of the one of the you know, the criticism you, you, you'll often hear of me. And, and I think to a degree it's true, um, is that I was too accessible. I'd listen to everybody. And, and, and I was influenced by too many people. That's a valid criticism, by the way. I, I don't deny that. I was learning on the job. I talked to as many people as I could possibly talk to. I listened to ideas from a lot of different people. And I was influenced by ideas from a lot of people as I was kind of traversing this this arc of, of becoming more and more involved in the, the creative side of the business, which I had no experience in up until around 95. Uh, I had no confidence in myself until probably into 96, well into 96 before I started feeling like I really deserved to be even at that table. And as a result of kind of learning on the job, yeah, I did talk to a lot of different people, but guess who wasn't one of them because he never spoke up. He never came to me with ideas. He never came to, he never stepped in, you know, while everybody's scrambling, we're changing TV, or we're trying to improve it, or we're changing things or adding things to a format. Now, Bret Hart was never one of the guys like a Hulk Hogan or like a Ric Flair or, and even less so Ric Flair, uh, like a Scott Hall, uh, Bill Goldberg, you name it, a lot of the top tech, Chris Jericho, a lot of top talent would come and say, no, 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 I, I, know, I know you want me to do this, but what if we do it this way? Bret Hart was never one of those guys. He would find out what he was supposed to do that day, would mope around for a little while, and he would disappear. Oh, by the way, he would show up 25 minutes before showtime or a half hour before showtime instead of when he was supposed to 75% of the time because his heart wasn't in it. And I'm not, I'm not, not critical of him. I understand it. Brett went through a lot. 
He really saw himself as this massive Canadian hero. He really believed, and probably still does in his own mind, that he let down an entire country because of what happened in Montreal. I mean, it affected him to the point of, I'm not even sure it was healthy. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it wasn't. But he was a shell of his former self. And although I do believe him when he says he wanted to kick Vince McMahon in the teeth, that's not a healthy way. That's, that's not necessarily a productive way of doing things. That was just a feeling that he had, but he didn't act on those feelings. Mm. He didn't come up with any ideas. He didn't come up to, he didn't look at, at, at a storyline and go, Oh no, man, that's not going to work. Why don't we do this instead? He never did that. When I, when I went to him and said, look, I'm going to do this thing with Larry Zabisco. I want you to be the referee because given what happened to you in Montreal, if there's ever anybody that's going to be a referee that's going to call it down the middle, it would be Bret Hart. And we weren't ready yet to introduce him in, in, into a storyline. This was the beginning of the three-act play, if you will. And oftentimes in the beginning of any story, movie, television, book, whatever, you know, you're, you're inciting incident, the thing that just makes compels that story to, to to move forward isn't necessarily something explosive and it, it i'm not saying i'm not justifying the idea by the way it was a bad idea let's just I'll, I'll stipulate that right off the bat your honor however you know did Bret hart come up and say now i've got a better idea let's do this instead he didn't and that's Brett's responsibility. So rather than taking responsibility for his own missteps, his own mistakes, his own shortcomings as a professional and as a performer, his tendency as a human being is to lash out at somebody. He's got to have someone to hate or he doesn't know how to start his day. And that's just unfortunate. And, and you know, as for, you know, the, the moment when, you know, Brett and I, you know, just had made up, as you pointed out. It was far from that. Um, we just kind of crossed paths intentionally on my part. I waited for him to get away from the group because we were sitting at a table, and Brett was a chair, one chair away from me sitting at the table, and everybody was having cocktails, and the mood was very good. It was a very – everybody's talking about the old times and having a blast, and, you know, th- there was no negativity at all, none whatsoever. Everybody was in a very festive mood, and and everybody was under control. It wasn't like everybody's drinking too much or crazy. It wasn't that. It, it was it was like uh, it was a group of guys getting together and having a couple beers. It, it was early in the evening, and when when Bret Hart got up to go to use the restroom, I said, I said, look, I'm sitting here with him. It's you know, there's an elephant in the room. It's awkward for both of us. I'm going to try it, and and he was, I think he was with his grandson. I said, I, I want to, I want to lighten this up as best I can. I'm not going to get up and leave because he's here. I'm not going to do that, but I will make an attempt to at least make it more comfortable for everybody. And I, and I said, Brett, you know, you do whatever you want to do, but going forward, you know, publicly, I'm just, I'm, I'm just not going to take the low road with you. I'm, I'm just not, you have my word. And, and I guess to a degree, I'm probably going back on that right now. And I, I, I don't, I don't mean to in a way because I understand to, I don't know Bret Hart real well and I don't know him very well at all as a, as a human being. All I know is the experiences I've had with him. And we did have some very deep and, and personal conversations when he first came in, especially following the death of his, of his brother. And I feel like I know him a little bit. Um, 
I think Brett's intentions are really good. And I think he, he is a good human being. And he certainly was from a technical perspective, not from a character perspective, but from a technical perspective, one of the best that's performed in the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And I respect the hell out of him for that. But I don't respect the tendency to blame everybody else and take no responsibility for the shortcomings in your life or in your career. And I think most people that listen to Brett's interviews kind of feel the same. You know, he's a very bitter and, and maybe that's changed now. I noticed he's got some, a new social media platform and where he's going to talk about his life and his childhood and whatever else he's going to talk about. And I hope much like doing the show with you, Conrad, for me, you know, the beginning doing 83 weeks and going back and revisiting all this stuff and listening to what Dave Meltzer said. And it, it was hard for me, you know, for the first few months. And then once I kind of put it all into context, it became a, cathar- a cathartic experience for me, meaning, you know, the more I talked about it, the more I went through it, the more I acknowledged my own shortcomings, my own mistakes, and had, you know, for lack of a better word, fun with it. Um, all of a sudden, it took on a whole different meaning for me. And now I, th- there's very few things that I enjoy just on a personal level as much as I enjoy doing, you know, a look back uh, at WCW with you on 83 weeks, even when it, you know, involves some dumb shit that I've done. But, man, being able to take responsibility for your own shit is an important part of growing. And I hope that Brett's there because I part of me really likes Brett. I, I do. I, I've missed the Brett Hart that, I mean, I've, I've got a book. I'm, it's right under the desk that I'm sitting here talking, talking to you on. Um, it, it's Brett and I had a lot in common. I loved the American West history. I love Native American history, still do to this day. One of my favorite books of all time is um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown. I probably read that book, and it's a big book. It's, it's, it's an extensive history. I probably read that book no fewer than eight to 10 times over the last few years. And I'll probably read it again in, in over the course of the next year. But Brett had a lot of the same kind of interests. And he sent me a book uh, about the history of the West. And he wrote a very nice inscription on it. And, you know, he sent me a, uh, a, a lever action model 94 Winchester. That was an absolute mint condition. And I, the, the serial numbers on it, um, identified it as a, as a, a rifle that had been made in the 1890s and it belonged to a local sheriff in California. And there was history to it. And he sent me that because he knew I loved, you know, the, the history of the old West. And I miss that guy. Because that guy, that Bret Hart, is a really enjoyable person to be around. But when you get into the conversations about his career and how he was wronged and how he was screwed and how this guy screwed him and that guy screwed him and this, this guy's fault and that guy's fault, it, it, it gets kind of uncomfortable, at least for me. And I, I avoid it. But I, I, I like Brett. I, I, I know you people might not think that based on what I've said, but I've got to be honest about this stuff. I can't, I can't sugarcoat a response when, when I'm responding to something that I just heard, but I do like Brett and I wish him the best. And, and I, more than anything, I hope he's happy. I just hope he can find, I hope he can find happiness in whatever he does. There's no better time to say, I love you. 
and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. Now, you've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com, and you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Stephen has a ready-for-love engagement ring collection. There's no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. And don't worry, Stephen won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently... He's kind of kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and his guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too. And that's just the beginning. Gifts that say, I love you every single day. Backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com for fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Kuhn. Conrad's scapegoat, whipping boy, but also producer for 83 weeks. When I found out about ad-free shows, the show I was most looking forward to hearing was what you're about to hear right now, the story of when Eric Bischoff went back to the WWE. Now, it wasn't for a long time, but the story's a good one. Here's a clip from that show right here for you right now on 83 Weeks. So you have these sort of conversations a little bit in conversation one with Vince a little more maybe in in conversation two or visit two is it during visit two that he explains that he wants to sort of carve off the shows to you and Heyman or did you get that sense in the first visit oh no I knew that immediately I mean I, even after you know the very first meeting um uh and it, I just don't know if I should mention names or not. I'm sorry for hesitating, but the, an individual very close to, to Vince, um, after we got finished up with Vince, uh, he, he took me down and said, Hey, there's somebody I'd like you to meet. And he took me down to Paul Heyman's office and you know, it was like, Paul probably already, you know, Paul's a very smart guy and sure. he figured Paul, cause Paul had already, Paul was already on board. He already knew what he was doing. If I think Paul had already started in his role as a director of SmackDown before I got there, actually about a week or so before. So I, you know, Paul figured it out exactly what was going on and we had a great conversation. You know, it was, it was fun. And I went over and I think, uh, who else did I run into? I may have run into triple H. I definitely ran into Stephanie as I was leaving. I was coming down the elevator and Stephanie, you know, walked into the elevator as I was going down and she's like, <laughs> why am I not surprised to see you here Tremendous. In, in, in a, in a very, you know, funny, funny, way. funny way. And, you know, gave each other a big hug and, and that was it. But, uh, no, I, I knew, I knew what was going on. I knew, I knew what the role put to, I didn't know the details of it, but I knew generally what the role I was talking to Vince about was going to be. Did you have, uh, I'm always fascinated by this process. Do you, in that second visit, um, 
Well, I don't know how to ask it unless I just ask it. Did you work out the money with Vince directly? Or is that something that you dealt with someone in human resources about through a series of emails? How how do we, we understand what the job is going to entail and that he's going to ask you to move over and, and all that type of stuff. But when it comes to dollars and cents, is that a conversation you have directly? Uh, that was made clear to me. Uh, I mean, it was a very short conversation. It was like, here's the position. This is what it is. This is, this is your compensation. This is the compensation for this position. Cause I hadn't taken the job yet. Um, but it was made very clear. And again, you know, I, I was doing it for the money, but that wasn't the most important thing. Sure. It, 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 like if, if they would, if they would have come to me and, and said, okay, here's the role, here's the position, here's the compensation package. And it would have been half of what it actually was. I would have still done it. I wasn't doing it just for the money. And I've always believed, and this is something that I actually shared with my son over the years. You know, if you focus just on the money, you're always going to be disappointed yep. because you, you get used to the money. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I've been, I've been dirt poor. I've been so, you know, I, I won't go through it again, but you, people have heard the story, right? It was in the book. I know what it's like to not to, to barely be able to feed my kids and have to bounce checks to buy diapers and all that kind of crap. I've, I've lived that life. Um, and I've also lived the exact opposite of that life. And one of the things I've learned in between is if it's just about the money, you're always going to be miserable because when I was dead broke, when I was bouncing checks to buy diapers, when my kids were still young and I, I could barely afford to feed them or keep my house heated. Um, if someone would have said someday you're going to make, you know, mid six figures in, in the wrestling business, I would have thought, Oh my God, my life will change forever. That will be the greatest thing ever. And I'll be happy for the rest of my life. That would have been my thinking when I was in my twenties. <laughs> right. And here's what, here's what happens as you get older and eventually, hopefully with the grace of God and some hard work, you get, you, you become more successful. And then all of a sudden you get used to that lifestyle, you know, that little house, that I couldn't afford to heat and those diapers that I had to bounce checks for us. Well, I don't need those anymore. Cause now I've got this nice 3000 square foot house in the suburbs of Atlanta. And oh yeah, I'm driving a Porsche and oh, I can take my kids on vacation and oh, blah, 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 all the shit that money provides. Right. But you get real used to that real quick. Yeah. And it's no, it doesn't feel as important to you as it did when you were broke. I'm just, this is me now. This is my, no, you're exactly right. This is, this is my, this is my, you know, problem, I guess, in life is once you get it, it's like, oh, well, no, it's not that big a deal. Mon and money matters get, most you, when you don't have any, you get comfortable, you get used to it. It's, yeah. And you, I, I took it for granted. I did. And so I, I, I learned from that, you know, and I've also learned that if you work really hard Going back to passion and the conversation we had with Tony Khan, if you're reasonably intelligent and you work really hard and you have passion, the money will be there. If you don't focus on the money, the money will come. If you focus on the job, the passion, the vision, use your head, do a couple basic things consistently fairly well, the money will show up. But if you focus on the money and you don't focus on the passion and, and the rest of the process of getting you where you want to be and doing something you really enjoy doing, then it's temporary. 
it's only going to last for a year, a month, two years, three years, whatever, because you're not doing it for the right reasons. But if you have the passion and the rest of the things that we've discussed, chances are pretty good you're going to be successful. And and that's kind of the way I went into that second meeting is I'm not worried about the money. Right. I, I didn't I didn't ask about it. I assumed it was going to be pretty decent, and it was more than pretty decent. But it wasn't the driver. As much as I needed it at the time, there's no secret, as much as I needed the bread at the time and the security that it provided, it still wasn't the driver. You know, I, we'll talk about that later, but I was always, I don't know, a little shocked that people jump to, well, it's in the questions. We'll get to it. Let, let's talk about expectations. You know, we, we, um, we do a little series over on adfreeshows.com that it's called ask Conrad. And I get loaded up with lots of wrestling questions and podcast questions, but occasionally I get some sales questions and business questions and time management questions and things like that. And somewhere along the way, I've shared something with some of our listeners on adfreeshows.com that, that I do in my real life all the time. And that's preach that managing expectations is the key to life. And I wonder how the expectations were communicated from Vince to you, or did you know going in automatically what Vince's expectations were in this role? Um, that wasn't clear to me. I mean, let me take that back. Uh, yes. I mean, the, the framework of the responsibility, now keep in mind, this was a new position. All right. It, it had never existed in, in WWE prior. It certainly didn't exist in WCW, you know, when I was there. So this was a brand new position and I th- there, a lot of thought I think had been given to it in WWE and, and it had been thought through and vetted by some really intelligent people. Um, so I had a general sense of expectations, but it was pretty expectations, but it was pretty broad. There weren't really, uh, we didn't discuss benchmarks. We didn't discuss, uh, other than those that were kind of provided within the compensation package. But even that we didn't discuss, that was just there. I had to, you know, go, go home and read it, you know, after the fact, but, um, I had a general sense of the expe- expectations, but I, I will say, and this is again, you know, going back to one of the things that you and I talked about in 83 days, the podcast we did, that was my, that was, that was my bad, you know, had, if I were to do it again and I won't obviously, but if, if, if a situation like that occurred again, I would really drill into the expectations aspect of it. Because that's where things can fall apart in a relationship everywhere. You know, I mean, with family members, with, you know, working relationships, I mean, failure to communicate honest expectations is probably at the core of more failed relationships, business and or otherwise than almost anything else. And that's where I fucked up. Because I, I just assumed <laughs> I said, oh, I'll figure that out once I get there or I'll, I'll better understand it, you know, cause I'm, I'm a quick study for yes. the most, usually I'm a pretty quick study. Yeah. In this case, I wasn't because I was entering into something that was far more complex than I anticipated, um, both from a chemistry perspective and just an operational perspective. WWE was a much 
bigger, much more complex and sophisticated machine than I thought it was. And because I kind of underestimated the complexity of the situation, I didn't spend enough time really thinking about that aspect of it. Because I'm like you, you know, ex- managing expectations. And I've always looked at it, not always, but for the most part of my life, adult life in, in the wrestling industry, I've always known that man- I've learned the hard way, by the way, not because I was born brilliant. You know, I've, yeah. I, 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 I screwed some shit up by over, you know, over promising and under delivering. And I knew how important that was creatively. I didn't realize how important it was on a business level, on a personal level, as I should have. Distracted driving is a serious problem on our roadways, leading to the deaths of thousands of people and the injuries in the hundreds of thousands each and every year. When you take your eyes off the road, even for a second, it can be deadly, not just for you, but for others as well. It's important to know that 48 states ban texting and driving, so distracted drivers are not only putting people at risk, they're breaking the law. Look, It's dangerous to use your cell phones behind the wheel. That's why law enforcement officers write tickets and enforce anti-texting and driving laws. Remember, eyes on the road, hands on the wheel, and mind on driving. Remember, you drive, you text, you pay. Brought to you by NHTSA. Yeah, the personal thing is something, you know, everybody listening to this, because it's majority guys, here's a pro tip for you. If you're going to be out with your buds, hanging and having a couple beers at the bar, you know, when things get back to normal and your wife says, cause we all do the check-in right. And say, Hey, just wanted to see some of the guys, blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah. Go have fun. We all do that. But then the question will always be, what time do you think you'll be home? And my advice is (laughs) add an hour. If you think you're going to be home at 10, say 11. So then if you cruise in at 1030, you're greeted with, well, you're home early. Versus if you say when you think you'll actually be home, which is 10 and you come home at 1030, Lord, I was worried sick. And in either case, you created the happiness, the happy ending or the, the unrest. And it was all just expectation management. And I think managing expectations may have been, I don't know, ultimately the, the sort of straw that broke the camel's back. There's some other stuff that, that I'm sure went wrong with the WWE deal, but let's, let's talk about. The process again, we, we've got an understanding of what our compensation is going to be. We have an understanding of, of what you've got to carve out for and not, I know there's certain things that you can't talk about here on the program uh, of another variety. I want to sort of speak in code for those of you who can read between the lines, you got to carve out for the podcast and perhaps a theatrical type production. You got to carve out for that. Was that discussed as well? Yeah. Okay. And so at that point, once we know we've got that identified, you're going to head home and tell Lori, the good news that, Hey, see this sprawling ranch and this big ass house we've got, well, we're going to a uh, corporate apartment in downtown Stanford. How was that received? Amazingly well. And again, you, you have to, I mean, you know, my wife, I shouldn't say you have to know my wife. You already know my wife, but you, you, you haven't had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with her and getting to know her, you know, one-on-one. She is the most optimistic, um, supportive person I have ever met. And I mean, she loves it here too. She, we, we do have a beautiful home. We've been fortunate and blessed and all that to have a place that we really, really love. And 
for most people, that would be really, really difficult to give up. Now for Lori, she was like, great. When should we start packing? How are we going to do this? And, you know, it's interesting as, as, as I said, it, I must've known this like just intuitively or, or, or whatever, but I said, look, let's, we're not going to sell the house. We're not going to pick up and sell everything we own and go start over right. <laughs> at 64 years old. You know, I, I knew going in my mind, I should say, I didn't know anything, but I, I, in my mind, as far as expectations go, I thought, okay, how long, number one, what do I think I have to offer? And again, I really believe that as I do still that had it worked out, I think there would be a process in place and it would have taken some tweaks and work and contributions from other people. But I think there would have been a process in place that would have made the creative process different than it might currently be. I say might, cause I don't know, I'm not there, but I thought, you know, once I do that, well, what do I have to contribute? You know, I'm not the, I'm, I'm, I'm not the guy that's going to sit around a table and start thinking of wrestling angles or storylines necessarily. I may, I may, I may come up with a storyline as a result of working in the process, but that wasn't my, I didn't see that as my contribution. There was a lot of other really talented people there that could do that as well or better than me, but I could take those ideas and craft them in a way to give them a better chance of success. And I thought, well, once I've, once I've, and I knew it was going to take a while. It wasn't going to happen overnight. It's not like walking in with a recipe for a chocolate cake and saying, okay, this is how you used to cook chocolate cakes. Here's how we're going to cook it now. It wasn't that simplistic. It's far more complex than that. But I figured, well, that's going to take me a year, year and a half to kind of work the bugs out in that and get that process in place. And then what? I'll be 65, 66 years old. And yeah. so I kind of looked at WWE as like a two or a three year gig. Right. Not because I wouldn't have wanted to work there longer, not because I devalued it in any way, but I was honest about what could I, what could I really contribute that actually mattered? And I figured after a year and a half or two years, maybe three, eh, it would be time to move on. So I said, look, since, since this is a, sh and that's in my mind, that's a short term gig. And I said, we're only going to do this for two or three years tops. So we're not going to sell the house. We're not going to do anything crazy. We're going to throw whatever we can fit the back of our pickup truck. We got a Chevy avalanche Z 21. It's got a small, you know, short box bed on the back. I said, we'll rent a four by eight foot U-Haul trailer and we'll take the bare minimum of what we need and we'll get whatever it is we need to get when we get there, but let's take it really slow and let's be nimble because you never know. It's, it's the entertainment business. It's not even the, just the wrestling, but it's the entertainment business and the entertainment business is fickle as hell. So I said, let's just be smart and be nimble and make it an adventure. And that's exactly what it was, man. I went down and you know, right after the 4th of July and my friends and family all left because I'll come out here for a week or so. And uh, once I sobered up and uh, got everybody out of the house, went down and picked up that four by eight foot U-Haul trailer, came in and packed up some boxes of things we absolutely needed. Whatever we couldn't fit in the U-Haul, we put in the truck, loaded up the dog and off we went. And we kind of looked at it as an adventure. Right. As opposed to going, oh my God, we're leaving our beautiful home in Wyoming. Oh, it's downtown Stanford. Oh, the weather sucks because it does. Um, 
I can't stand the weather on the East Coast. I just can't stand it. It's either cold and miserable or so freaking hot and humid you can't stand being outside. But I thought, you know what? I'm not going to bitch about it. I'm just going to go there. We're going to make the most of it. And it's kind of what we did. I felt like we were 21 again. You know, it's a funny story. This has nothing to do with anything. But when Lori and I first met in Minneapolis, and I, I, I think it was 1981 is when we first started dating, maybe. Maybe 82. I was whatever I was, 26, 27 years old. Lori was 20 or 21 at the time. And, you know, she was a model. I was doing my thing in, in, in Minneapolis, you know, modeling a little bit on the side. I was doing the sales manager gimmick for a food processor. And the modeling thing for me, you know, it started to really evolve. I started to grow. You know, the opportunity started growing. And I had an agent in Chicago, um, who came to Minneapolis scouting for talent and met both Lori and I, we both met with this agent and she said, why don't you guys come to Chicago? I can get you both a lot of work. Now at that time as, as a print model, you know, catalog model, Sears and target and Montgomery wards when it still existed, all that kind of stuff, not the super high fashion GQ kind of stuff. That's a whole different universe, but the day to day, you know, the Monday through Friday, blue collar modeling gigs, you know, for, for the major, you know, department stores and things like that. Um, they were paying $125 an hour. Well, in 1982, $185 an hour was a lot of money. Yeah. And, well, you know, Lori and I were, we were so young. It was like hell with it. And ironically, I had a pickup truck then too. That one was a 1970 Chevy C10, but it was the same thing. Let's load up the truck with everything we've got, move to Chicago and see what happens. It was an adventure. And I remember it was in the middle of the wintertime. And in this truck I was driving was an old beat up piece of shit. But it was like, let's let's drive. So we had this 70 or 71 Chevy C10 pickup loaded up with whatever furniture, you know, we had together that we could throw in the back of a truck and rented a studio apartment in downtown Chicago. And it was an adventure. And it was fun as hell. And that's exactly the way Lori approached the move to Stanford as an adventure. And it was honestly, we had a blast. You know, we left Minneapolis, or excuse me, we left Cody, uh, stopped in Minneapolis because it was on the way, uh, a little bit out of the way. We stopped in Minneapolis, visited with my brother and sister for a couple of days, and just headed out and made our way. And just, we had a blast. The trip out there was a blast. So you make it out there. You're uh, going to get set up in your corporate apartment. And, um, eventually once you're settled in, you're going to report to work, but that doesn't happen right away. Like this announcement comes out on June 27th that you've been hired. Uh, let's go back to the observer here so we can get exactly what he wrote. The big question is what does this mean and how much autonomy will both men have? Of course, referring to you and Heyman. Uh, the only time McMahon has ever turned creative over to someone in the past was when he brought in Bill Watts, a relationship that fell apart within weeks because Watts was told he would have complete control of direction. And then McMahon started overruling him immediately. And he decided to quit from a personality standpoint. Watts was completely different from Bischoff and Heyman as both are far more political while Watts was a guy who would just say what he thought to anyone. And while he was a game player, uh, he was a very different type. One of the key points at the time, and there were many, is that Watts wanted to do more believable style wrestling and felt Bret Hart fit the role best as champion, while McMahon had already decided to replace Hart in the role with Shawn Michaels. 
Heyman is 53 and Bischoff is 64. Both will be more political in the sense that they aren't going to be headstrong to the point that they'll quit over being overruled and probably go on or go in expecting it will happen constantly. And that's just part of the game. And that's Meltzer's write up. And I know as a rule, you usually don't agree with anything he's saying, but you knew probably when it came to creative stuff, Hey, uh, Vince is going to have final say, no matter what we're talking about right now. Well, I mean, look, anybody that is, is a fan of, of the wrestling industry and spends any time, you know, keeping up with the news and the developments in the wrestling industry and WWE in particular, I don't think it's a surprise to even a small child of average intelligence that Vince McMahon runs that ship. Right. Right. (laughs) And, and there is nothing that anybody sees, hears, thinks, smells, or otherwise can come into contact with the WWE brand that doesn't have Vince McMahon's fingerprints primarily all over it. It doesn't mean that other people don't contribute. They do, but there is one filter. There's one decision maker in WWE. It's, it's, it's well-documented and has been over the years. So, you know, that's not necessarily clairvoyance on anybody's part, including Dave Meltzer's. Um, it was pretty obvious to me and it, it, yes. So long-winded, you know, answer cut short. Of course I knew that anybody in their right mind that knew anything about WWE knew that I didn't go in there with the expectations that I was going to have autonomy or creative control. And if somebody would have suggested that I did, I would have laughed at them and said, come on, you don't need to say that. Just come on. Let's be honest with each other here. It's okay. But no, I, I knew exactly the situation and and I was fine with that. You know, that's the last thing that I really wanted was to be that guy that's calling the final shot. I've been through that before. I spent decades doing that, uh, or a decade, I should say doing that. And it's great in some respects, but in other respects, it's a drain. And I, I, I was very comfortable being a supporting cast member as opposed to being the director, if you will. Um, not a director in the sense of the title of the job, but you know what I mean? Um, I didn't be, I didn't need to be that guy that was calling the final shot. I wanted to be part of the team that was putting the best ideas on the table. And, and more importantly, I wanted to be the guy that developed the process that helped put the best ideas on the table. That was my goal. So I, I had no misconception about who was going to be calling the creative shots and how difficult that challenge was going to be. I knew that that was clear to me. I'd worked there before, if you remember, uh, not you Conrad, but I mean, if the audience remembers, I'd spent, you know, four or five years of WWE. And while I hadn't worked, I didn't work with Vince directly. I was in close enough proximity to fully grasp and understand his process. Let's continue with the Meltzer write up. And I know you're going to have, uh, some response. So I'll try to take a break, a paragraph or two in. Bischoff comes out of left field in a sense. Bischoff worked for McMahon in the past as a television general manager character, but had no decision-making role. He was excellent in that role. Say what you want about Bischoff and a lot can be said, but he has always been a great television heel character. As far as a guy in charge of creative, this move was stunning. It's been noted that the move shows just how little McMahon has really paid attention to wrestling since Bischoff was put in a similar role with TNA and the run was largely considered a disaster. A number of people who were in TNA while he was there were stunned, noting it showed just how little McMahon had actually followed the industry. In addition, Bischoff 
has very little familiarity with the current product, which was tough enough for Watts when he made his WCW comeback after five years away in a business that had changed somewhat during the period he was gone, but hardly like the modern business, which is rapidly changing both in style and distribution. Bischoff, who had major financial issues in recent years, would have been an easier acquisition in that sense. Perhaps since Bischoff was mentioned by Cody in AEW's videos, McMahon feared having him on the other side with opposition seeming to be more serious than TNA ever was. Perhaps he simply knew of nobody else for the role, which is quite the indictment of either McMahon recognizing sharp younger guys or an industry that hasn't turned out any, and the latter is hardly the case. The question becomes the hierarchy of everything. When Bruce Pritchard came back, the idea was said at first that he'd be the guy under Vince, which ended up not being the case. The hierarchy had been Vince McMahon as the top guy with Paul Levesque and Kevin Dunn as the other main guys and Dave Kapoor as senior VP of creative, as well as Ed Kosky. So there's a lot to unpack here. As you would say, uh, let's just, uh, you know, address the elephant in the room. Had you even had a cursory conversation with anyone at, e- at AEW at this point at all? None, none. I, I talked to Cody probably in 2000 or in 20, I don't know, 17, maybe. I know, I know 18 right. with me at Starcast. Would you know briefly, but it was like high and by, you know, hey, yeah, no, 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 but I mean, I actually, I was in. I was in Los Angeles working on a, a project with a company called Think Factory. And I think it was right after Cody left WWE. That's when it was. It was right after whatever whatever year that was. I can't remember. And I was I had read about it, you know, and and I called Cody and and just told him how proud I was was of him. And and this was, you know, long before, you know, AEW was a thought in anybody's mind, right? It, there was no, there was no reason for me to call Cody other than I was proud of him. And because of my relationship with his father and, and I, I knew that if, if Dusty would have been sitting next to me at, at, in the restaurant that I was sitting in, when I called Cody, he would have been beaming with pride because his son made a decision and decided to take a risk as opposed to take the check. And that's the way Dusty was. I mean, Dusty was a Dusty was a bit of a renegade when he was younger. Now, as he got older, he got wiser and settled down a little bit and was comfortable in the role that that, that he had. But there was a you know there was a time when I worked with Dusty, and that was you know towards the tail end of his his career in some respects. Um, he was like he was a very independent thinking yeah. individual. He was not a follower. He was not an ass kisser. He would do what he would have to do. He would bite his tongue and then he would go back to his office and figure out how to do exactly what he wanted to do anyway, (laughs) which I loved about him, you know? And, and when I read that Cody had left WWE and I, you know, he's a young guy and he was, I'm sure he was making a lot of money for a young guy who is early in his career. And he had the, the, the benefit had, had Cody decided to just bite his tongue, suck it up and do what he needed to do in order to keep his head down and keep his job. He'd probably still be there making a lot of money. And when you're a young, and, and I don't, I don't know how old Cody was a couple of years ago. How old is he now? Uh, I think he's 35. Okay, so this was probably would have been 32, right? When I when I talked to him. 
And I, and I never got to know Cody. I mean, Cody was really young, you know, when I was working with Dusty and I mean, he was 10 or 12 years old. So it wasn't like I hung out with Cody. Right. And when Cody was in WWE, I, you know, how, it, how it is, you've been backstage. It's you, you're in, you're out while well, you're in, you're doing your shit. It's frenetic energy. There's, you know, hundreds of people all over the place between talent and production. And it's, a, it's, it's kind of a controlled chaos throughout the entire day. So you don't really get a chance to sit and shoot the shit with too many people, right? Unless you're working directly with them. So I, I never really got to know Cody, but I knew he was Dusty's son, and I, it just motivated me to pick up the phone and give him a call. But that was the only conversation that I've ever had, other than a you know, hey, how you doing, Cody? Kind of thing. It's sarcast, right? Um, but I, no, I had never had any. I've never had a conversation. I, I mean, Tony Khan the other day was the first time I've ever talked to anybody from AEW. All right, we're gonna get back to the crazy in just a minute. But right now, I want to. I just want to take a moment to be serious. Serious question. You got shame in your game? Be honest with yourself. Still feel a little queasy or uncomfortable looking for a hack for your sex life? Not me. I got no shame in my game. And that's why I love Blue Chew. BlueChew.com offers men a performance enhancement for the bedroom or the living room, the kitchen, the dining room, and occasionally the laundry room. At BlueChew.com, you get the first chewables with the active ingredients, sildenafil or tadalafil. Same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. BlueChew.com affiliated physicians work with you to find the right dosage and the active ingredients that's best for you. The chewables from BlueChew can be taken on a full or empty stomach. And they are chewables, so if you don't like taking pills, you don't have to take pills. Online physician consult is free, so it's cheaper than any of those other two, Viagra or Cialis, and it only takes a few minutes to connect with a BlueChew.com affiliated physician. And if you qualify, you get prescribed quickly online. No in-person doctor visit, no awkward conversation, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Oh my God, if I never have to wait in another line, it'll be too soon. BlueChew ships directly to your door in discreet Packaging. The chewables from BlueChew.com are made in the USA. You and your partner, or partners as the case may be, are going to love it. Chew it and do it. Now, here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free. 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 There's no shame in free. By using the promo code 83weeks, just pay $5. That's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code 83weeks. Bluetooth.com, promo code 83weeks. Chew it. Do it. No shame. All game. Hey, guys. I hope you're enjoying the show thus far. Now, coming up, we have another exclusive, or it was exclusive to ad-free shows until today, interview with Conrad, Eric Bischoff, and Mark Madden. Now, of course, Mark Madden was a great announcer. All-around good guy, by the way. But I have to tell you, he is one of the most outspoken individuals in the entire world. But speaking of Conrad, if you've made it the show this far, I will tell you that I've only seen Conrad uncomfortable one time. Conrad's pretty unflappable, as you may know. But the one time I saw him uncomfortable was because of the following person that you're going to hear. Mark Madden. 
Enjoy another clip from adfreeshows.com. Join today. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks on Patreon. And we've got another bonus episode coming your way today. Believe it or not, we managed to snag Mark Madden, who was doing color commentary on that outrageous episode of Monday Nitro we just watched, where Vince Russo won the world title. And of course, we're on the heels of revisiting Bischoff versus Flair. And throughout that episode, we quoted Ric Flair's book. And Eric Bischoff took that writer to task. And I don't know that he's really put it together yet that Mark Madden was the author of that book. We got these two guys together today, and I wanted to share it with everybody here as a bonus episode on Patreon. Well, we're excited to have you on. You know, we've uh, we've exchanged some tweets before, and I've talked to you through Rick before, but I've never actually. Oh no, gotten... I've listened. I've listened to the to the, uh, the the podcast. It's good stuff. It's it's great to relive those days too, because in in quiet form, I was there for all of them, and I I really those are times I very much treasure. Well, let's talk a little bit about it. You know, this past week we covered Vince Russo winning the world title and. Since it's one of our more recent episodes, you were doing commentary at the time. I believe, uh, the infographic said you were TV's sexiest big man or best looking big man, whatever it was. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So good times chat me up about Russo winning the world title, the silliness of the cage and him being speared through the cage by Goldberg. And now he's the accidental world champion. Any memories about that or Vince Russo in particular, you'd like to share. I've tried to block it all out. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm not a Vince Russo hater because he was always personally nice to me, but you know, I, I wasn't a big believer in accidental world champions and stuff like that. And uh, it, it's funny because when I did color, I was by no means the best of my generation or any other, but, but I used to get mad when people would say, Oh, you're making a lot of what you talk about farcical. Well, that's tough to do. Otherwise, when a lot of it literally is farcical, the, the match I always cite is, I did Viagra on a pole. Yeah. The, the winner gets Viagra down from the pole and gets to go into Nitro Girls locker room. So I didn't call it like it was Rogers and O'Connor from Comiskey Park. If you're doing slapstick, I'm going to call slapstick. And maybe that's not what I should have done, but I, I didn't see another way. So the, the Russo World Championship thing is kind of in that vein. The David Arquette World Championship thing, again, in that vein, I just didn't remotely see a point to it. And if my announcing reflected that, that says uh, poorly about me as a professional, but I didn't get it. No, and I, and I will tell you, Mark, you know, when, when Conrad and I were doing, and we did a watch along because like, you know, the, the real, you know, the, the head trip for me when, when I'm doing these podcasts with Conrad is so much of the stuff that, you know, he, he, he finds in his research is stuff that I've, you know, I've forgotten about, you know, I mean, it's, 25 years of, you know, thousands of hours of stuff and all kinds of runs together. So what I've learned to do after a couple episodes, I kind of figured out, you know, the shame in my game. And now I go back, if I know we're going to talk about a certain episode or a certain pay-per-view, I go back and I watch it. And the head trip for me is a lot of the stuff I never, you know, I produced it. I moved on. I produced another show and I forgot about it. I never went back and looked at things. So some of the stuff that I'm, you know, we're talking about now on podcasts are things that I haven't seen in 10, 15, 20, sometimes 25 years. And yeah, I'm right. I'm right with you there, boss. There are certain special moments. I really remember like, you know, the Hogan turn at, at bash at the beach when I was doing internet stuff and, 
And, and one thing I really remember, it's not date specific, but during the NWO run, when it was really hot, you could walk out in the arena and you could hear the cheers swirling back and forth. Like half were for the home team and half were for the away team. And that was a dynamic I never heard at a wrestling show. But I'm with you. A lot of the very specific stuff, I, I just don't remember. And, and I do need to, to review it, whether, you know, looking at a, at, a, at a summary of the show or like you going online to see a video. Well, and in this show in particular, you know, Connor said, okay, we're going to talk about this one. So I went back and I looked at it and I had never seen it before. I didn't watch it, you know, when it actually happened. And I certainly never, you know, decided to waste two and a half hours of my life or two hours of my life to check it out. (laughs) But in going back and looking at it, one of the things I said to Conrad, you know, when we were looking at it live uh, for me the first time was, or second time actually, was if I'm, I said this in my podcast, if I'm Mark Madden and I'm looking back at this, I'm wishing I was never in front of a camera with a red light because to try to get to try to put that over was just so, as you pointed out, so nonsensical. There's just no way to make it unless you make a joke of it. There's no way to make it feel entertaining because it was so stupid. It was really hard to talk about unless you just made a joke of it. Well, it depends on your definition of entertaining, but but I get it. It just didn't fit what I thought wrestling should be. And I understand there's, you know, a happy medium between new style and old style in, in every generation of wrestling. But but stuff like that to me had no style. And, and that made it very difficult to, to, to work with. You took the words right out of my mouth. There's there's new style. You know, we're, we're seeing a new style today with a lot of the stuff that we see out of, you know, we saw it at All In, we're seeing it at Ring of Honor, we're seeing it in New Japan, we're seeing it with the Young Bucks, guys like Cody Rhodes. You know, wrestling always evolves. You know, when I first broke into wrestling, you know, with Vern Gagne, all I ever heard was Vern Gagne and Nick Pockwinkle and Ray Stevens and Wahoo McDaniel, you know, bitching and moaning about the 25-year-old guys that were coming up in the business. <laughs> you know, when I went to WCW when I was an announcer, all I ever heard about, you know, were the older guys, you know, whether it was, you know, Ole Anderson or, you know, you name it, guys that have been around for a long time, bitching about, you know, the 25- and 30-year-old guys coming up. You know, in the 90s, it was, you know, you know, bitching about, you know, the, the, the cruiserweights, you know, guys like Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, we're all going, wow, man, what is that flip flopping around? That doesn't make any sense. And that's just, it's a it's the nature of the business. It evolves. And I don't know shit about football and I know you do Mark, but the game of football has evolved too. The athletes have evolved. The rules have evolved. Television has made a change. I get evolution. But I don't think what we saw was new and old. I agree with you. I just think it was fucking dumb. Well, and the other thing about, about Russo and Ferrara, and, and again, I have no complaint with them personally. They, they treated me professionally and very well. But they based a lot of their booking on humor, and they just weren't funny. I said that to them at a, at a production meeting, some kind of get-together. I said, you guys think some of this stuff is funny, and it just isn't. And they go, what do you mean we're funny? And I go, no, you're not. I, I do radio three hours a day, so I know from funny, and this isn't it. Like, they thought Oklahoma, the character that made fun of Jim Ross, was funny. And I said, it's just not funny. They had a, they had a skit where Medusa, like, got pulled back by her hair. She was on the apron. Her hair got pulled back over the top rope. And Ferrara as Oklahoma poured barbecue sauce down her cleavage. 
That's not funny. It's not sexy. I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. And they didn't get that. And if you pointed out stuff that had gaps in logic, they were likely to say, oh, it's, it's only wrestling. And it just, it just, you know, again, that doesn't excuse me if people thought I sucked. And, and years later, I forget if I did or didn't, but, but it was just, it was, it was just, again, hard to work with. It's hard to work with when you don't believe in it. Well, and you know, you point, I think you point out something really good and, you know, I, I like to watch comedians and I love to watch musicians. I mean, I have no musical skills whatsoever and I am the unfunniest motherfucker that ever put on a pair of shoes. <laughs> So it's it's not like I aspire to either, but I but I appreciate great music and and great musicians because to me it's just like this, it's an amazing talent that I can't even relate to. I'm, that's how unmusically inclined I am. And the same thing with a great comic or a good comedian. But man, there is nothing worse than a bad musician or a bad comic. The oh, that no question, no no question. And and again, I don't want this to seem like a bitch session about. Uh, Ed and Vince, but they were good in New York because they had an editor and they needed an editor. And I think to some degree, unless we are editors, we all need editors. And they just didn't have that. I agree. I mean, Eric, when you, when you were, you know, at the top of the food chain, I thought one of the things you did best was like, do the yay or nay. You know, you might not map everything out yourself, but you, you had an instinct for what was going to work and what wasn't. Again, you were an editor. Well, my instinct was only good about 30% of the time. The rest of the time, we were watching Dungeon of Doom. <laughs> well, I think you're probably selling yourself a bit short, but i got to tell you, in, in booking any entertainment entity, you guys tell me, what do you think the top end is for success? How often can you, can you do what's right, what's funny, what's entertaining, especially when you have that many hours to do like WCW did at the time? Honestly, Mark, I mean, that's a great question. I was thinking about this today. Um, and, and this is this is going to sound like an off-subject off comparison. But, you know, the, the odds of a television series, you know, I'm still in that business, you know, much, much to my dismay and, and pain at this point. But, you know, when you're creating, selling, producing television shows – the odds in today's marketplace of a new show succeeding beyond its first season is about 12%. Those are the odds. So you, you, you know, networks put millions of dollars. They do all kinds of research. They hire the best people they can hire. You know, they, 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 they attach the best actors and writers and directors they can find. And you've got about a 10 or 15% shot, maybe the average somewhere in the middle, of actually making a season two. And I mean, that's, that says it all right there. I mean, it's so hard. And then when you're doing it, you know, 52 weeks a year and oh, by the way, you're trying to police an audience, you know, the wrestling audience is so diverse, you know, it's not like, you know, a, a typical, you know, uh, television show that is appealing to people who are interested in crime shows or doctor shows or sitcoms, you know, that's a, that's a, a fairly safe, narrow focus that you can, you know, research and analyze and try to cater to but the wrestling audience is so broad and people don't realize it you know the the age the demographics of a wrestling audience range anywhere from like eight years old on up to 68 years old you know it's men it's women it's people that love you know hard edge kind of 
you know, nitro attitude era. It's, it's people that love shtick and comedy. It's people, you know, I mean, the, the tastes are so broad. Well, like they all watch for different reasons. They do. They do. Which even makes it more difficult to, to be honest. So it's, it's tough. I think if you, you know, for me, if you can bat 20%, 30% and feel like you hit it out of the park, you know, 20% of the time, or at least got a triple, that, that's a damn good average in television. I, I think that's right. And I think that applies to wrestling. But the strange dynamic in the business today is, you know, there's less people watching wrestling in America than at any time in history. But those people watch more and spend more money than ever before. So WWE kind of caters not to the smart mark, you know, no baby faces, no heels. It's, it's just something that I don't like as much as I used to. Although I think I've done a pretty good job with the, with the women's end of it. That's diverse and not as revolutionary as they pretend, but at least it's something different. But, uh, but with the, with a smaller audience than ever before, that's a slippery slope because it doesn't take as much now for it to fall apart. It doesn't take as many people to be displeased as before for that to have a big effect. I don't know if I agree with that, Mark. You know, I, and this is a debate I've had with a lot of people, and it's going to sound odd that I'm taking this position that I'm about to take. But, but I think, you know, people that look back and they go, oh, back in the 90s, you know, WCW had a four, and WWF had a five, or vice versa. You know, there were nine total points, you know, night ratings points every Monday night. So much of that was duplication. Um, where both companies got credit really for the same viewer. No, that's end. true. That's a good point. And, and, and I'm not sure that the audience is really less significant now than it was then. I, 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 I don't know the answer. I don't have any math or research to support my observation, but I do know from even back in that day, you know, advertisers were even smart to the fact that there was a lot of duplication that nine or 10 or eight rating total was really not an eight or nine or 10, you know, rating total. It was a little misleading. And the irony was since people flipped back and forth during the commercials, the advertising wasn't nearly as effective as the numbers indicated it should be. Exactly. Damn. This is an interesting conversation, Mark. I miss you. You son of a bitch. (laughs) Well, it's funny. I'm not nearly as invested or close to it as I used to be. I don't talk to a whole lot of people at wrestling, you know, guys I work with. Most of them really aren't around much anymore. But, but at my heart, I still do really love it. I'm grateful for the chance I had to work in it for those eight years. And uh, it's great to talk about it. I really feel like those days, those 83 weeks, like you guys say, were, were a magic time. And I don't think it'll ever be duplicated. It certainly hadn't been done before, you know, since McMahon took over the industry nationally. And I, I don't even see anybody having the ways and means to approach it again today. No, I mean, the, well, the, the situation, again, you know, the evolution of the entire industry has changed so much that in order for there to ever be anything remotely close, and I, I agree with you, I don't think it's ever going to happen, but let's just say, you know, we, we, we smoked a bunch of really high quality weed and we were trying to imagine how it could possibly happen. It would take a, a you know, a major network with a, you know, a, a giant footprint of distribution and international reach, it would take that network to invest probably a hundred or more million dollars and be willing to bet on that investment over the course of seven to 10 years. And that'll never happen. In today's marketplace, 
the return on investment that's required in public markets. No one's ever, ever going to do that. So it will never happen again. But it did because of the just, you know, the timing, Ted Turner owning the networks, Ted Turner being a wrestling fan and, and being, you know, and believing in the wrestling product is a viable way to build an audience for a network. Those conditions will never repeat themselves. Yeah, that's that's absolutely for certain. It, it was the perfect storm. And, and Turner being so invested in wrestling, you're right. That was a, a tremendous factor. I just think today with, with one company, a monopoly, it, it shouldn't be a slippery slope. This just feels like it it might be. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but maybe years from now. I know the, the audience is older. Uh, that's certainly what the, what the TV surveys say, the demographics. And I, I do wonder what happens to the company and to wrestling after Vince McMahon retires or passes away or, or, or whatever. I think there's a lot of variables coming up for the business that it had never faced before. Yeah, I mean, that's a crystal ball kind of a question, and none of us will know that. I don't think any of us really, you know, know for certain how integrated, you know, Triple H and and, and Stephanie and, and the people that work around them are. I, I do believe, just based on the little bit I know, and it's so periphery, it really doesn't have any value. But, you know, Vince has done a great job of putting very high quality people around him within the business units of WWE. I mean, some of the highest quality people you could hire in any sport or entertainment franchise are employed by WWE, whether it's in legal or whether it's in, you know, international you know, distribution and syndication or marketing, whatever it is. Some of the highest quality people you could find anywhere in the world work in WWE in those specific areas. But there is a certain value in the leadership, in the vision, and it's really all been about Vince McMahon for so many decades now that, you know, one has to wonder, you know, does Triple H really have what it takes, or Triple H and Stephanie, the combination perhaps, have what it takes, you know, when that time comes? Um, I'm not sure it's ever going to come. I think Vince McMahon is like a fucking cockroach who's going to be around long after we're all gone. <laughs> I, I don't think the man's going anywhere, personally. But in the event I'm wrong, you know, is that is that vision that the, 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 the amazing vision that Vince has had, does that exist within the combination of Triple H and Stephanie? I, and I don't know the answer to that. Well, and does the desire exist? Does the longevity or might they, after Vince passes, you know, sell the company to a major media conglomerate? I, I would definitely not rule that out. I, you know, I wouldn't rule it out either. And this is, again, we're both speculating here, and I want to make sure I make that clear because I have no inside information. Me all neither. I, all I have is a little bit of an impression based on the little bit that I've been exposed to having been around them. On that note, I think Stephanie, I don't know about Paul. I've never really gotten close enough to Paul to get a read on him or Triple H. But with Stephanie, I think she is – a clone of Vince McMahon when it comes to that. I mean, she is her father's daughter in every shape and way. And I think the fact that it's a family owned business and the legacy that it has and the strength and power of her personality suggests to me that, you know, in that regard, nothing will change. I think that I would like to own the concession for wrestling nostalgia. The amount of money to be made. I mean, look at Starcast Conrad that you ran at the all in show the amount of interest in wrestling nostalgia is way beyond the pale. I can't believe 
that fans are interested in guys who haven't been around for 10, 20, 30 years like they are, but they are, and it, it, it's quite amazing. I found All In and StarCast to be almost contradictory, and that's not a criticism of either event. But you had the one supposedly revolutionary event featuring all these guys who weren't affiliated with WWE, and then it was coupled to all the old, old, older, oldest guys coming back, diametrically opposite of the people that were working the actual wrestling show, and it all tied together, even though it was, like I said, pretty much diametrically opposed. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I think that's a fair criticism. I know when I first started releasing... No, it's not even a criticism. I just think it's pointing something out. Well, a lot of people, you know, when we first started rolling out, you know, names of, of who was going to be at StarCast, people were, were chirping online saying, oh, I wonder if whoever's doing this even realizes that it's attached to All In. This guy doesn't get it. But what I wanted to do was sort of have something for everyone. So if your kid is a real big Young Buck and Bullet Club fan, but... Maybe you're a little older and you know, you're more of a four horseman guy. Well, we've got the four horsemen there, but if you love the nineties, like everybody did, we've got the NWO there too. So we've got different generations and something for everybody, including all the way back to the Lawler Kaufman stuff. And that's really what I was looking for is really the audience at home from a fight TV perspective. How could we have something for everybody? And I heard an analogy once that. Dusty Rhodes said a perfect wrestling card is like the circus. You've got to have the trapeze artist and you've got to have the lion tamer and you've got to have the clowns and you can't have the same thing over and over. You've got to have something for everybody. So that's what we tried to do with Starcast. And in the end, I think most everybody had fun and got their money's worth. And certainly all in was a revolutionary show. And it'll be interesting to see what they do next. Mark, if you were sort of booking the territory, what do you think Cody and the Bucks should do next? If they if they all go to WWE at the same time, I guess bets are off, aren't they? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not dismissing that possibility. And if they do that, that era, that concept, it's dead along with them, you know, departing. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. Uh, one thing I found really amusing about about Starcast that whole weekend, and Eric, I know you'll you'll want to chime in on this. When did the wrestling media become celebrities? Yeah. When did they, you know, get up there on stages and do these panels? And not that some of them aren't qualified, but the vast majority of them aren't. And that's one thing I just, I just never have quite gotten. Along with the proliferation of people who don't have journalism degrees, never worked in the industry of journalism outside that that covers wrestling, you know, put up a blog and declare themselves the New York Times. That that just, you know, with somebody who's worked in. I hate to say the real media. I hate to sound that condescending, but as someone who's worked in the real media, you know, now for 40 years, that just strikes me funny, kind of weird. You know, I, and I, I'm, I'm happy to come in on that, although I probably shouldn't because I know Conroy gets sick of hearing me go off on this kind of shit. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I do. Not, not I, me, boss. I love it. I do, you know, want to go back to the. Uh, the kind of dichotomy of of the the Starcast, you know, audience presumably, and the All In audience, and and I, it's not that I disagree, but I think too many people made too much of that dichotomy, because I, you know, and I'm, you know, I am what I am. You know, I'm 63 years old. I haven't really been relevant in 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 the televised wrestling business now for, you know, a long time really since WWE, you know, TNA was kind of a 
pimple out a hamster's ass. It didn't really matter. So I've really been off TV for all intents and purposes for about 13 years. But when I walked through there, you know, there were people, you know, that were obviously all in fans. They were there to see, you know, all in. They were not there for any other reason. But, man, they had so much, um, I don't want to say respect, but they were so excited to see not just me, but people like me, whoever it was, DDP, whoever it was, you know, that was there. So the, I think there's a, a – the wrestling fan, I think, is a lot like a NASCAR fan or a Major League Baseball fan. Um, yeah, they may be there for the younger guys, and that's the action they want to see in the ring, but they still have an appreciation or respect or a connection to people that were there before them. And I, I actually think that, that um, contrast – of, of presentation actually is what made the whole thing really work. I think if you would have tried to have StarCast with a bunch of young and up-and-coming podcasters and a bunch of young and up-and-coming indie guys, and I think it would have fallen really flat. You know, the, as long as you, you know, guys like me, and I'm not even a wrestler, so that, that I can't include myself in that category, but as long as you have guys who were formerly wrestlers who kind of pay a little respect to the guys that are coming up underneath them, I think it's a perfect combination. Oh yeah. And I think, it, I think it worked out that way. Like odd doesn't translate to not good, but I still stand by the original description is, is odd. You know, when you have the young bucks and DDP in the same proximity from decidedly <laughs> different eras and decidedly different styles, you know, that that's just odd. Yeah, it is a little odd. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Now going back to your journalist thing, you know, and I I try because you know I know I, this comes up every week when Conrad and I do our podcast, and and, I, and I'm not blaming you, Conrad, but obviously you know in your research, Dave Meltzer has been the guy who for the longest period of time uh, has has been the most prolific um, writer, dirt sheet writer, commentator, whatever you want to call him, about the you know the wrestling business, and that's often you know what is used as a reference when we're talking about something. You know, it comes up, well, it was reported by, you know, the Wrestling Observer that this and this happened. So we're constantly kind of referring back to it, you know, in, in context. And and I get that. I get that Dave has done it for a long time. I get that he's made money doing it. He's carved out a career doing it. But, yeah, it goes up my ass like a goddamn flamethrower when he's, you know, positioned as an expert. He's just a guy with an opinion. No different than... Well, the guy that works at UPS that loves watching wrestling and has been watching it for 10 years, he's got an opinion too. The only difference between the two of them is Dave's been putting out a newsletter. Now he's got an online, whatever it is, but people put him on a pedestal just because he's been doing it for a long time. Not because he's good at it, just because he's been doing it for a long time. Well, you, you might be underestimating him a bit as a gatherer of news. Uh, although there's no checks and balances when only one guy does it. And for years he was the only guy that did it. And, and to be fair, he did, you know, work in, in journalism. He covered soccer at one point. He's worked for newspapers, but here's the story I always tell about Dave. And it's when I really kind of fell off his bandwagon as I might, cause the story involves me and, and started to question him. Uh, when I replaced Bobby Heenan in, in 2000 on nitro, I'll be very blunt. It was because Bobby was impaired at work frequently and Bill Bush and Kevin Sullivan decided that they couldn't trust him on live TV anymore. 
So they called me at the spur of the moment in Pittsburgh to fly to Wilkes-Barre Scranton. And that was my first nitro. And I lasted for, uh, I guess, uh, a year, give or take. And Dave never reported why Bobby was replaced. Never reported. He held back. My theory was always because Bobby was close friends with Tanae. Tanae was a Meltzer stooge going back for years. And, you know, at Tanae's behest, he covered for Bobby. To this day, he's never reported why Bobby got replaced. And then not long after that, he quoted Bobby as saying, yeah, Russo replaced me with Madden because they wanted more of an MTV look. You know, ha, 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 let's laugh at the fat guy. And that's when I got pissed because Dave knowingly let a non-fact get into the observer because he knew why Bobby got replaced, and he especially knew that Bush and Sullivan replaced Bobby and not Vince Russo. So ever since then, my logic has been, if Meltzer held that back, what else has he held back to protect whoever? But like you said, Eric, he's seen as like the New York Times, the paper of record. And I think that is going way too far. I think, you know, people act like just because it appeared in the Observer, it's fact. And I can quote chapter and verse many times where it was in the Observer, and it certainly was not fact. Well, you know, you do know that a week before Bash at the Beach in 96, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and I were, were in discussions about the possibility of bringing Mabel in as the third oh, man. Oh, no. <laughs> if you wanted a big fat guy, I was right there all along. Uh, hey, so let me let me ask this. Right, let's not beat up on Meltzer anymore because I know Conrad's tired of hearing him. No, 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 no. Well, just in closing, my my statement about him would be: I, I respect his impact, I respect what he's done, but for me, the veneer of infallibility has long since fallen away, and, and that's that's as fair a statement as I think can be made, and he deserves. Let me ask you this. You sort of said that, you know, he should not be looked at as the New York times and he should not be looked at as, you know, the paper of record or, or whatever the, the phrase you used is if Meltzer's observer shouldn't be that what should there isn't one. I mean, it's the most bastard industry in the history of entertainment. I'm not sure that there is an accurate, uh, paper of record. And I don't think there's even an accurate there's no papers anymore. Well, I guess technically the observer still publishes as a dirt sheet, but even the online stuff now, I mean, there's inaccuracies all the time. It's a, it's a tough business to cover. So and I don't mean Kyra, please forgive me. I don't mean to interrupt you there, but as a guy who, you know, throughout the nineties, you know, actually going back to 1987, when I first started working for, for Vern, and I became aware of dirt sheets. I didn't know what a dirt sheet was before I started working for Vern. And then just listening to, you know, Vern and Greg and Wahoo and, you know, Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle burying him and, you know, becoming aware of them, obviously it, it affected the way I looked at them from the get-go. And then as I kind of evolved through the industry, then it became more apparent to me how inaccurate and distorted and all that that they were. But even given my proclivity to kind of bury them just because of my history over the decades. If I look at, for example, if I go to PW Insider right now, or if I go to, you know, PW Torch or ProWrestling.net, even WrestleZone, to me, they're no longer spewing that opinion as fact kind of um, diarrhea that they used to. 
to me, they're, they're, they're really just repeating the information that's out there that's already been published. They're almost um, harmless at this point. I don't – back in the 90s, you know, when Meltzer was at his peak, you know, my bitch with him and others, not just Dave, was that they were constantly repeating or interpreting a rumor and innuendo as absolute fact. They didn't say, look, this is what we've heard or an unnamed source said this. It may or may not be true. It's not verified. Nothing like that. They would never qualify anything. It was always, oh, I heard Eric and Scott and Kevin were talking about having Mabel be the third man as fact. And nowadays, I don't see that. I, I, I just see them reporting stuff that's coming right out of WWE or actually taking headlines out of SmackDown or Raw and using them as kind of like, you know, clickbait and, and trying to generate traffic out of things that we've already seen on television. I don't see a lot of the same kind of adverse editorial that I used to see. I think that's probably accurate. And I think that's because WWE has been a bit more open with, with reporters and, and, and it's worked in their favor. Cause now you have Rolling Stone with the regular wrestling column. You have dead spin with the regular wrestling column. They've made themselves more accessible, more accessible than they've ever been, certainly. And I think it's led to the uh, change you're talking about. All right. Let's quit talking about dirt sheets. We give them way more time than they deserve. We should be making money. <laughs> we need to, we need to <laughs> figure out how to be making money off them, not vice versa. Eric, don't forget, I started with the dirt sheet. That's where you hired me from. <laughs> I was going to ask you, brother. I, you know, I wanted to ask you from the get-go, and this goes back to you know me just not being able to remember all the shit I've done over 25 or 30 years. How did you and I first come into contact? You, uh, I, I wrote for Pro Wrestling Torch. And oh. you called me out of the clear blue sky and say, hey, I read your stuff. You know, you're witty, you're funny. You should be working for our hotline. And originally, that's all I did was the hotline. and just kind of branched out from there. The first time I met you face-to-face, the first day I started with the company, I want to say it was 1993, Slambury in Philadelphia. It was like, remember the nostalgia show that WCW used to do annually? Yeah. It, it was at that show. That was my, my first day. And it just kind of went from there, and I got more stuff added on. You know, when we did WCW Live, the Internet uh, Real Audio Show, which was me, Borash, Bob Ryder, and, and a lot of wrestlers would guest as well. I maintain to this day that paved the way for the wrestling podcast industry today. Without question. I thought that was my primary value, much more so than when I was on TV. I thought that was a groundbreaking show in terms of wrestling. It, it really pulled the curtain back within the context of WCW and, and let people take a peek that sometimes probably went a little too far. I remember you used to get you know, hot over stuff that would leak over there, but, but it was really good. And one reason it was really good was because between me and Borash, you had guys who did radio and it came off as a radio show, as opposed to just people talking into a microphone. And there, there's a subtle difference there. I concur. I, I agree. I, I didn't see it then, honestly, but I certainly see I, it. Now. Eric, I didn't see it then. NMLS number 65084 Equal Housing Lender Woo! Save with Conrad.com Just helped a family just like yours Secure an interest rate in the twos 
for a mortgage. You're overpaying right now if you're in a 30-year loan or if you have an interest rate in the threes, fours, fives, sixes. What are you waiting for? Keep more of your own money before it's too late. Just last week, the experts started to advise that we might be on borrowed time with these interest rates. Take advantage of these rates while we've still got them and find out how much money you can save for free at SaveWithConrad.com. This episode of 83 Weeks, just like ad-free shows, it's hard to keep up with all the content because we're not done yet. There was one occasion recently where David Arquette came by to speak with Eric. Of course, if you have not seen his movie, You Cannot Kill David Arquette, go watch it right now as soon as this podcast is over. But meanwhile, David, nicest guy in the world, had a lot of cool things to say, and it was really great to hear him and Eric talk about the old times and make sure to check out stuff like that on adfreeshows.com you can't even keep up well worth it but for now because conrad's internet's out you get to hear it right here on 83 weeks so you you talked about your dad you know introducing you to professional wrestling do you remember do you have a, a memory of the very first wrestler that really stood out in your mind as a young kid yeah, well, some of my earliest memories were just black and white, like uh, Olympic Auditorium kind of reruns or something. But I remember seeing um, Gorgeous George and George the Animal Steel. Those two were some of my earliest like memories. I, uh, George the Animal Steel in in WWE, but um, uh, I just remembered just uh, him eating the the the. Um, the turnbuckle and and all the sawdust or whatever and i was just amazed by him and then i what really kind of got me we were huge fans and uh you know we did our version of backyard wrestling jumping off the top of a you know you know the second story of a onto a uh mattress that's put on a few things getting your first concussion you know (laughs) the whole thing and then um but we saw Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan at the uh, Los Angeles Sports Arena, and it just blew my mind. I was full-on Hulkamaniac. And, and Mr. T, and that whole time, uh, I loved. But we saw Andre, and it my head exploded. I was like, <laughs> to see him in person as this, like, eight-year-old kid or something, was he was so huge. And, like just to touch him i remember touching him and and that really sort of stuck with me forever uh and and that's i don't know i loved it and i always loved wrestling and then my friends kind of grew out of it and i was still kind of oh well still liked it (laughs) you know what i mean i always liked it and i always would watch along the way but i kind of fallen you know out of it a, a, a lot and then, but I would still go periodically, uh, you know, to house shows and everything, because I, because I did love it. I'd drag a friend along, and then I got a few friends that did like wrestling. Uh, some older writer friends, a guy named Ben Joseph and Curtis Reynolds, these two writers. And then I had my little group again that I could geek out with wrestling. So then we'd start going to shows and stuff. And uh, and then I saw uh, Jason Hervey a lot, and uh, and I knew you were working with him. That's early before even uh ready to rumble came up i think right. that was like a connection because then he knew a lot of people backstage and then i was like wow this is funny you get to meet like these wrestlers i've been fans of forever you know and then um 
And then this the the whole wildness happened. <laughs> and then Ready to Rumble came. I did, you know, when you have a movie like Scream, you you start to be able to like, okay, maybe I'll do that. I'll do this. You get a little more. You don't have to audition, and you can choose sort of the project. You get to work in relationships with different companies. So Ready to Rumble was something that uh, Warner Brothers had because they also had, you know, uh, whatever, uh, Ted Turner, you know, that whole deal went down. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, it was a crazy time. I, lo I loved it so much, and I just wanted to be a part of it. And I read the script, and, like, on page five, it was, like, Macho Man. And I was like, well, I called him right up, and I was like, are they talking, like, actual Macho Man's going to be in this movie? I was like, I'll do it. I can't. I I was so like thrilled to meet Macho Man. That was like a huge day, and I couldn't believe he's such a kind guy. Uh, and then I just, in general, just to get to work with all of my 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 heroes. You know, I would I had started to get back into it, so I wasn't sort of aware. It was funny. Some fan came up to me after I'd won the thing and went like this to like whatever the too sweet thing, and I was like, well, what's <laughs> Because for some reason, if you go out of wrestling for three, six months, you'll miss like a cool little, you know what I mean? That Lashley and Lana got married. You know what I mean? If you miss that, then you're like, what do you mean they're married? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> then somebody like a fan comes up with too sweet. Well, that was so huge. But they were like, you don't know what too sweet is. And I ran into that fan again and he came up to me. <laughs> He was like, when I first met you, you didn't know it too sweet. <laughs> I was like, okay. I'm going to back up a little bit before yeah. um, Ready to Rumble, because you had a you had a great career going. You know, the Scream franchise was hugely successful. Never Been Kissed, I think, is another one of your your, your features. And you had several others, but you were, you were considered a, a serious actor prior to Ready to Rumble. Did you have agents or managers or... Anybody close to you said, hey, David, I know you're a wrestling fan, and I know this is a, you know, Warner Films, you know, feature script, but do you really want to do wrestling? Did you have that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a little bit. A little bit. I definitely had it from, like, my friends and, you know, yeah, I did, from my peers. and um, But I knew Oliver Platt was going to be in, and he's a tremendous actor, and and uh, Scott Kahn, I'd known forever. Like, uh, <laughs> there's such a funny, crazy story of how I met Scott Kahn. That's not in the movie that we told. But Scott Kahn wouldn't be in my documentary. The little jerk. <laughs> I, I love him. I busted his balls. He doesn't like, like, the public. He likes to just think. But then I see that he, there's some new Netflix documentary, and he's in it. I'm like, oh, really? So you could go to Mr. Cartoon, who's, like, this uh, infamous, like, legendary uh tattoo artist but we all grew up in los angeles so we all knew mr cartoon when he was just a, a, like a, a gangster you know in east la uh and graffiti artists and stuff so sorry i, I don't know how to turn off my stupid messages it keeps dinging Pardon we can't me. hear it so you're good okay. <laughs> you're good so, so yeah um i don't know where i was going with that let me, I'll, I'll pick it up for you. So you get the script uh, right about this time. And, and actually just to fill in a couple of blanks here, because uh, Conrad Thompson, my partner and I did a, a, a podcast that drops this Monday, where we talk a lot about 
um, your involvement in, in winning the title and all the controversy that oh, you know, wow. I know it's today or something or yesterday or something. I'm, I'm confused if it's April 25th or April 24th. It's, it's around, it's around the 20 year anniversary. We're, we're, we're within a it's couple actually, days. No, it's like today. Some people think it's today or it was yesterday. But it's my wife's birthday, so that's just kind of random. <laughs> that is random. Yeah, that is random. But the, the Time Warner um, acquired Turner Broadcasting, and there was a tremendous amount of pressure on Turner Broadcasting to find ways to create synergy. Synergy was the, the buzzword du jour back then, and Leonardo de Bonaventura, I think, was the uh, producer um, yeah. at, at the time, and and. It all kind of came together. And then I got let go in September of 99 prior to actual production. But I was originally supposed to play the uh, Joey right. Pantaleone character. Amazing. I, I oh, missed my oh, big that. shot. I had one shot and I missed it. It's too bad. <laughs> no, you don't have one shot. You have many, many shots. You make shots all the time. That's, so one of the this movie is that you don't have to accept the ending of a story that somebody's writing for you you could change you can you know go back in time in a sense you can revisit things you could prove yourself you can always you know uh i don't know you can always go that extra mile and just not let it die and uh, you know and that's one of the things your, your documentary you can't kill david arquette that's, I guess, you know, and I'm going to tell you this in all, all sincereness, and I may well up saying it. So if I do forgive me, but I, there were two times in, in the documentary that I actually had tears in my eyes and not necessarily because the scene or the, the moment within the documentary was sad, but I felt you so much. And I, I felt what you were experiencing in that moment in such a real way. And I was able to, you know, I've known you for a long time and, you know, we don't hang out and, you know, but we've had some amazing times and stuff outside of wrestling too. Like we did that 3d short. We've had some incredible stuff together. So yeah, we have a friendship. And, but I, I felt like, wow, I, I know David Arquette at a level after seeing this documentary that I didn't know before. And it was, it was really moving. I mean, it was, it was an amazing journey. It, it really was. Yeah. I didn't know what I was getting into either. <laughs> I uh, knew it would be a, a love letter to wrestling. That's really what I always, what I wanted to do with it. And, um, but I kind of went on this journey and they sort of took me on this journey and it just explores the sort of world just and even wrestling, the more you get into it, it's just a glimpse. It's just sort of my point of view of this sort of time period in my life, but it actually happened at a time in my life that I was going through a lot of stuff. I, you know, I, a lot of people had known about my sort of, uh, uh, stuff with addiction drinking and blah, blah, blah. So uh, that all kind of came to a real head during this time period. I've uh, since quit drinking, but uh, I've smoked, I smoke pot now. I just kind of have to. It's, it's kind of what I've figured out is kind of my chill place. But uh, drinking, I just get too crazy with. So, and you, you, you definitely go into to a fair amount of that. And that's another thing. I don't want to keep putting you over, but I was just so blown away. You know, one of the other things that I, I – when I walked away after watching it the first time and even more so the second time, um, 
you reveal, I mean, you expose literally and figuratively so much of yourself in this documentary. It takes a set of balls, brother, to do what you did. It really, really does. Well, part of my thing is like, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I just like things out there and just, you know, in acting and in wrestling, like you really try to find what's real. You try to find real, honest moments. And in documentaries, especially in documentaries, documentaries are only really compelling if they are uh, kind of cringeworthy at times. They're very, like, revealing. It's, it's hard. It's vulnerable. You have to, like, put yourself out there. But you do it in a way so that you can find the real. Like with, I wanted to find the – and I did – the reality of wrestling, the the real sort of power of it and what it's about. I was just so blown away on so many levels throughout this process, especially about how it like, affects my acting. Because you might think like, uh, like they're over the top or this or that. There's certain reasons why things are bigger and things are smaller. You're essentially doing a performance with no dialogue when you're wrestling. Like some people grab the mic and do a little promo, but for the most part, you're just watching. And that's what's so thrilling about it. And then when you learn the storytelling elements of it, and then you, then as a writer too, you start putting all these pieces together. And then and then it all kind of goes back to vaudeville <laughs> for me. It all is like, oh, I've been playing with this gimmick in my head where because I can't keep wrestling, it's just so painful, but I still love wrestling. So I'd probably want to go into a managerial role and some of my favorite people are like Bobby the Brain and uh, uh, Piper and uh, and just, I don't know, really uh, incredible like heels. Bobby the Brain especially. Just So one of the gimmicks I've been thinking about is sort of with Vaudeville is so just I got one move, you know what I mean? The, as, a, as a manager, I get my one move but I blow it the first time. I blow it the second time, and then finally I do it, and then it's like, eh. But that's like an example of showing a tiny story where they're, they're doing their match anyway. I'm just the manager, but I'm trying to be sneaky, and I do one thing, boom. Uh, but hopefully it's a good, funny pratfall. You know, and then I try to, do, you know, I'm thinking of a springboard, so I do a springboard. The first time I go, boom, face forward. People are like, ah. Oh. But if you start doing it, they think like it's like wrestle botch, like it's a bad move. And then you do it again, boom, and take a nut shot on the rope. And then the third one you actually nail, and then people will pop. That's uh, Those are the little things that when you do it for a couple of years, you're like, oh, this is how you tell a story in the ring without a thing. That's really funny. And I, 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 it sounds to me like maybe there's uh, You Can't Kill David Arquette, uh, the sequel coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, just honestly we 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 have uh we have a deal that we're gonna announce very soon so people will be able to see it and i'm really excited about it and uh but some of the international properties are still available so i'm like what is about japan it's like such a wrestling like i love japan anyway i love the culture the world the people and, and uh yeah so so I was like, what if we did a sequel of the whole, because there's such in, incredible wrestling in Japan. I, I don't know. That was an idea. 
So I, to back up just a little bit again and kind of to, to stay a little linear, if we can, telling this story. So you did, you, you did Ready to Rumble. You came on to WCW Nitro. You beat some jackass by the name of Eric Bischoff to become the world heavyweight champion. In the three-way match with you and Didi. What was it? Is it? Was it a four? It was four people? I think it was a tag. It was Jeff Jarrett was in there and DDP and you and I. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, right. and, uh, and you end up winning the title now. I found out during the podcast this past week when we recorded it, you know, it, it wasn't my idea to put the title on you, even though I – for 20 years or so, people thought it was. Vince Russo took credit for it, but I found out that it was really Tony Schiavone. I heard, I heard a rumor that it was Tony Schiavone like made a joke about it, but is yeah. it true? No, well, he didn't make a joke about it. He, it was a legit suggestion from Tony. Tony made it to Russo. Russo brought it to me, and we said, yeah, why not? That makes sense. Let's do it. So, oh, um, I mean, we, we were all, you know, guilty of, you know, there's a saying, success has many fathers, but, you know, failures, but an orphan. Um, I, I looked at it as successful. I've been defending the move for 20 years. Every time I do an interview, um, I would do it all over again. I would do it in a different way. I, I would have had you beat a baby face so that you ended up being the heel instead of you beating a heel, which really didn't do you any good. But, you know, that's 2020 hindsight. But, um, yeah, I found out it was really Tony Schiavone's idea, you know, to, to, to make you the champion. But it, you, and this was the, the catalyst or the inspiration 18 years after the fact. But you got, a lot of, you got a lot of heat for that from wrestling fans, didn't you? I did, yeah. I mean, um, a lot of it's my fault. But the weird thing about wrestling is you don't really, like, until you start going through it, like, in real time, it's really hard to figure out wrestling. You can't, like, there's a lot of, like, things. Like, they'll, for instance, they'll say, okay, I'm going to, you know, powerbomb you. And like, well, how does that, how does that feel? That sucks. They'll say, so it, it sucks means it hurts really bad. But that's just an example. There's certain things, like, even in my death match, there was some, this part comes up ultra violence. And I was like, oh, okay. And I just didn't know what that meant. And <laughs> now I do. Um, but, you know, it went really ultra violent. But um, there's just weird things you learn as you're going uh, through this process. But uh, what, sorry, what was your question? No, I, I was just kind of following up a little bit and in, in, in getting to the point where 18 years after you, you won the belt in WCW, 18 years of listening to wrestling fans, you know, yeah. take their shots at you, whatever the case may be. And wrestling's a weird culture. You know, wrestling fans are very, very, uh, they can be hard on you, you know. They can be, they, I mean, and they have memories like freaking elephants. They just don't forget. <laughs> anything you know but or forgive some, the weird part is some of them like it's so personal and deep and uh intense you know i want to say a few things i learned a ton from your book i loved your book cash is uh, uh what is it a uh, controversy creates controversy. cash yeah creates cash that uh that book was really amazing to read and i read a bunch of books on the journey like uh Jim Ross's book and just along the way, just getting people's perspective on wrestling uh, as I went through the process. But yeah, it was a, uh, for one, it, they didn't, the fans didn't react the way sort of I thought they would. I thought in my head, it was like, I'm the first fan that had 
become a champion. Like, a, you know, as a kid, I was always like, oh, I'd love to be that. So that's how I looked at it when it was presented to me. It's like, oh, I'm going to be the champion. Like, this is going to be exciting. I've always wanted to do this. This will be so much fun. So I didn't put all the pieces together because I, I was looking at it from that angle. So I, th- I, th- I thought the fans would be with me in we're all champions together, you know, but then it wasn't. And it was really the other side. And then it was like backstage too. And then I, at one point I asked Booker T, I was, it, it was like the second, first time I was going out as the champion and I was sitting there and Booker T was getting ready for his match. I said, Booker T, how many times have you been champion? He's like, never, I've never been the champion. Ooh, that, that's, that what hit, that's what hit me, but I didn't. I didn't know. I mean, I'm literally like a fan. I'm going around with a little miniature belt I still have, getting them all to sign it. You know, that's what one of the reasons why uh, Russo was like, you know what? He's a fan. He, he loves wrestling. Like, it would be great. Let's make him the champ. That was sort of something in his head after Shivani said it, I guess. But I was a fan. So that's what really hurt, that now – this thing I love hates me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like being in a bad marriage or something. <laughs> but I'd go, I'd go to like things and like people would be like, ugh. But then it also added like, and you're a pussy actor who, you know, everyone should beat beat the hell out. And then like something came out where International House of Pancakes turned into International House of Burgers. Like I hopped off, I hob. And they said, somebody wrote, that's the worst idea than making David Arquette the, the world champion. And I was like, wait, this is 17 years later. Like, can we not, you know, attack me anymore? Like, whenever there's – I was the low bar of every joke. And it just made me sick. And even you, like, I remember, like, in reading your book that you used to fight. And you were like – you were like a fighter. Like, there's – there's when you're a fighter, there's a certain attitude you have. You don't really take shit. No matter how big somebody is – you're going to fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so then you're in this world where you're not only a fight, you're, you're a pussy. Everyone thinks you're a pussy. So I really did at one point had an idea. Uh, it was after Tank Abbott beat me up. It, uh, I mean, we had a match together that night. And then everybody was mad at me. It was all coming down and everybody was pissed. Tank Abbott was there. I was like, well, fuck, if this is about beating people up, maybe he's all fucked up. I'm all fucked up. Let's scrap it out. And at least I'd show that I have nuts. You know what I mean? That I'd be able, like, go at it with Tank Abbott. But he was a nice guy. and There was no reason to fight him. And it was, would have been a horrible idea on my part. But I, I don't know. I think crazy things anyway. So what, when, um, before we say what, when did you, when did the idea pop in your head to do the documentary? Well, I was, I'm friends with uh, Dave Lagana. He's friends with my friend who's a writer, Ben Joseph. That's how this, we'd always like throughout the years, like he'd, he'd be in our circle of joking around with stuff. Um, and then we had, he may have mentioned something about it. You should do that. Or, or I mentioned it. I'm not sure how it ever came up. But that was years ago. And then it just kind of always nodded me. And what happened was I had uh, I, I had to, like, I was feeling weird stuff in my heart. I, uh, we bought a, a place in the, in the hills and uh, in the mountains. And it was, like, the altitude. And we were moving and stuff. And I was like, oh, 
So it's like, oh, really hurting me. Like my, my, my chest, this altitude's intense. So when we went down and I was moving some more stuff and I still had the feeling I was like, oh shit, this isn't altitude. It's something's going on. So I went to the hospital. They couldn't find anything. I went to work and then I had to be rushed from work because I was just, something was wrong. They did this stress test where they give you a shot instead of uh, on a, they either give you a shot one or one where you're on a treadmill. And this one was a shot. Give me a shot. And then I, I, I was like, I feel like I'm having a heart attack. And it was really intense. The doctor gets on the phone and orders like nitro, nitroglycerin, like down from the fifth floor. It's like, it's going to take them coming from the fifth floor. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets on the phone and he starts saying, patient came in, and blah, blah, blah. he's like, there's all this like doctor jargon. And I was like, oh God, he's covering his back for when I'm dying. So I'm sitting here dying and I'm like, oh, I can't die. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, my family loves me, you know, you know, sure I've made my mistakes, but it, you know, I'm a good person. And I'm thinking, uh, uh wrestling, like I wish it, you know, Wrestling fans didn't hate me so much. And I'm thinking this when I'm like about to die. And I'm like, so that when I got two stents put in my heart and I knew I had to lose weight and I, it had occurred to me like, why am I thinking about this? So it was just something that was important to me. It was more important to me than, and I was letting on to, I'd been holding this like grudge, like as much as they had been mad at me, I was like, fuck you, you know? <laughs> Because half the time you're walking around like, okay, you know, it's, it was funny. I was watching the Vice thing about uh, the Brawl for All, which obviously was a, a stupid idea. But if it was with me, you know what I mean? The Brawl for All with me? Come on. <laughs> bring it on. Bring it on. You know, because I don't mind getting knocked out. You know what I mean? If I've been, I've been knocked out before, so if I got knocked out. But if you don't, and if you do win... <laughs> I don't know. It, it it pays off. Now I remember when you called me before the uh, was it Legends of the Ring or Legends of Wrestling with Brian Knobs, right? And yeah, you, Legends you called of me. Yeah, was that 2018? I think it was. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and you you called me and we talked about this and you you this might have been somewhere around the time that you were really really formulating this idea for the documentary and you said you and you referenced this just a few moments ago you said look this is what i want to do i want to do this documentary and i want it to be my love letter to wrestling i remember that just like it was five minutes ago and and you know we ended up meeting in detroit and you brought your crew and i, I don't want to give away too much because the scene is pretty intense but and we have another mutual friend uh scott silver um, yeah Scott, you know, wrote the Joker with, with Todd Phillips and he's done, he wrote eight mile and he's done a lot of really great stuff. He's a super guy. I mean, we've become right. very, very good friends in this process, yeah. but, um, yeah, I, yeah, Scott, I was talking to Scott about it cause Scott Silver also saw the documentary and he, Scott called me and goes, all right, Eric, now tell me the truth. That scene in the hotel, was that real? I said, brother. There was a five thousand dollar camera that bit the dust. It was so real. I mean, that that was a shoot, <laughs> and that's how it started. Well, the whole thing was like that. This whole movie like turned out that way, which was you know really beautiful about it. And it's really a testament to sort of just like you know do something you believe in. You know, believe in yourself. Just 
give it your all. Like it really took like everything in it. In Tijuana, we went down in, in the thing. We sort of start from the bottom and we go through the sort of, uh, we want to sort of like take you on a journey through the different independent levels of wrestling and stuff. Um, but I forgot what I was going to say. Um, well, let me let me back that up just a little yeah, bit. Yeah. You're you're touching on a lot of really important stuff. So part of this journey, you know, the the first scene, I guess for, for me at least, um, one of the more important scenes was that first night where you when you showed up in Detroit and you came in hoping to be part of an event and this thing is you're going to go on this journey of kind of redeeming yourself because this is a story of redemption, um, oh. a, a complete story of redemption, and and it it went to shit right away. I mean, it, it went bad quick. Um, and by the way, that's not a reflection on you. Anytime you're at a bar with the nasty boys where there's copious amounts of fucking alcohol, it's likely things are going to go bad at some point, no matter who's in the room. But unfortunately for you, it, it, it did. But one of the things that impressed me so much about your documentary and why I'm so passionate about wrestling fans, whether they're a big fan of, of what you did, you know, in WCW or they weren't or whether they feel ambivalent about it, whatever, but you, you took us all, including me, I've been in the business for over 30 years, not anymore, but cumulatively over 30 years. And you took us on a journey and showed us levels of the industry that even people in the industry have never gone through before. I mean, you, when I say you revealed yourself and you did emotionally and you did as a human being and you did in so many ways, but you also revealed kind of the most fundamental levels of the art of wrestling. And, 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 and you showed us things that we don't ever really get to see. And the, the, the street scenes in Tijuana, without going into a ton of detail, I thought was some of the most fucking entertaining things I've seen in a long time. That was amazing to me. And you put yourself through that because you wanted to learn. And this is my interpretation. I don't mean to put words in your head or your mouth. But to me, the way I felt when I watched it was that you made the decision that in order to get the respect that you were looking for and to, and to send that love letter to the wrestling industry, including the fans that you were going to, you were going to start at the most bottom level you could possibly find and crawl your way out of that hole. And that, that, that had to be quite the experience. That's exactly was, was the idea. Yes. Start from the bottom. Something happened in between, uh, when I was the champion was the whole backyard wrestling thing. Like back then or at that time when I became the champion, backyard wrestling was huge or, or like, but then a lot of the guys uh, now came up from that and they're smaller guys and they're doing like crazier tricks. So that also added to me like, Oh, I'm not as small. Like I'm as tall as Daniel Bryan. You know what I mean? So if he can be, champion you know obviously he's an incredible wrestler and super trained and i'm a huge fan but in my head like and i've also i've always done athletic stuff i've done most of my own stunts and you know i'm, I'm not i'm goofy for sure but <laughs> but i'm also kind of a lot thicker than somebody might think like i'm more wrestler than uh than you might think so i think like when people start 
figuring like working with me in the ring and stuff, I think they get a different idea of kind of who I am. And what I was saying was I broke three ribs in, in Mexico and then I had to wrestle RJ and then go on this sort of run of a bunch of different matches and just taking bumps and like wrestling the independent circuit with three broken ribs is just, just the most painful thing. I still like uh, ache internally. <laughs> it's just the most painful thing. Like every breath, every like cough and these kind of movement, but then like throw on it, like kush, kush. <sighs> oh, and I took a, I took a few lessons from Johnny Rods. Johnny Rods in uh, New York. Johnny Rods, he put me through the ringer. This scar right here is from a bursa. I had a bursa, an infected bursa. So as I was wrestling, this there's like this little pad in your thing, and it becomes a big old melon and infected if you don't fix it. So learning how to do rolls with Johnny Rods <laughs> was such that part of this journey, the whole like thing. And that was thanks to Hale Collins, an amazing wrestler out of uh, Northeast Wrestling. That and whole journey has been part of my favorite part of it, getting to know, you know, the Nasty Boys, uh, you know, Knobs and, and, and uh, Sags and just great people, like really incredible. And you, you have been so supportive, so helpful throughout this whole process. And, uh, and you were just, I mean, there, you know, you... I don't know. You were very gracious. You didn't get too upset at me, and uh, you allowed the whole thing to play out the way it did. And it all sort of came around in, in the film, and it's really, uh, I don't know. I was just honored to be a part of it and be able to sort of show people. One of the my goals was to show people who don't know what wrestling is what it is. And I was worried a little bit about showing behind the curtain, but I'd asked a lot of people, I asked especially the referee and uh, the other, you know, people, producers and stuff, uh, Yuma and different people that were in it, um, and they were okay with, with sort of showing some behind the scenes. And the reason I wanted to do that is to show people, um, you know, what it is, but also, and, and then I'd asked, and it had been done before. They have shown it on film, like, what I'm talking about is some of the back, some of the secret language of wrestling, which you do see some of it in the film, but it it's it also holds uh, hold you know we hide some of it too. So it's this balance, but it's so much more real than I ever thought. It's like choreographed MMA, at least when people fight me. And with that, we get to the end of a great 83 weeks, a kind of best of ad-free shows for all of you who aren't on there yet, but you probably should be. But even if you aren't, you can enjoy 83 weeks every single week where you're listening to it now. Make sure to subscribe, give those five-star reviews, and tune in next week to 83 Weeks with Conrad Thompson and Eric Bischoff. Hey, you love the show, right? We'll show off that love with a shirt from ericbischoff.com or get your gimmick at boxagimmicks.com, the official store of 83 Weeks. Posters, hats, tumblers, accessories, and more. Boxagimmicks.com. There's no better time to say I love you. And the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. Now, you've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com, and you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. 
whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Stephen is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Stephen has a Ready for Love engagement ring collection. There's no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. And don't worry, Stephen won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently, He's kind of kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and his guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too. And that's just the beginning. Gifts that say, I love you every single day. Backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com for fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hello? Good afternoon. Uh, is this Mr. Richmond? I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. Yes, it is. Hi, this is Dave Silva. I'm calling from Save With Conrad. Hey, how are you? Doing good, my friend. Doing good. What made you go to Save With Conrad in the first place? Just doing the, the ads on the podcast. My wife and I were in a place where we thought, you know, let's see what we can do and, and check out different companies. And I said, well, I've got this one. So... I went on and, and the rest was history. We, we loved it and we stuck with it and thankfully they stuck with us and, and it worked. That's wonderful. Was there something specific that Conrad said on the podcast that kind of helped you make that decision to give us a call or email us? Skip two payments and, and you know, he'll, he'll find you the lowest rates and, um, and it came at a great time. We actually did it a couple months before Christmas so we got to have no payments for December, January. So that helped out a lot with Christmas shopping. We've got a three-year-old daughter. so. Any money that we could have put towards her that we didn't have to put towards the house was a good thing. How was it working with Derek? Oh, he was great. I sent him an email at like 6 o'clock at night, and he almost immediately called us. And we put him on speaker, and we, we hashed out what we needed to hash out. It was just the constant availability was, was great. Do you have any suggestions on how we can improve as a team for any future people we were able to help out? Keep going how it's going. I, everything is going so well, and... I mean, you guys helped us out so much and, and saved us money, and, and it just it couldn't have come at a better time, so just keep up what you're doing and, and thank everybody for all their, their efforts in it. Do you remember how much money we were able to save you? Um, I think overall it ended up being about four or five grand just off the top. I mean, we, we had a credit card that we had run up, and we should not have got it to the point that it was at. And we were able to roll that right in with the house payment. So our credit card right now is at zero, which is wonderful. Plus, then we got the two house payments. Plus, um, I think they ended up saving us like $2,500 extra on top of it. So it ended up being a, a significant hit of money to us. So it was it was definitely what we needed at the time. Now, would you recommend us to a friend or a coworker? Oh, yeah. oh great. That's wonderful to hear. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free. 
at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.